people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. is a place where the northern lights transform the sky. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. Modern mermaids spring from the sea. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. The land breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And all who witness its wonders come to believe in its magic. What about the sky? The sky, sir, is amazing. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. This is the new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire, Local Hero. The survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north, through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Oh, boy. Are we going to be rich? Peter Riegert. Bert Lancaster. Take the chopper. Go to Aberdeen. Get on over to Houston. I want to stay here. Run the hotel. Do little bits of business. You can go to Houston. Take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. Local hero. <laughs> the story of an ordinary man who cared enough to do something extraordinary. Local hero. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, I used to get migraine headaches when I would drive a Chevy. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Jonathan Melville. I'm more of a telex man. It's the 600th episode of the Projection Booth, and we are celebrating with a special episode all about Bill Forsyth's local hero. Released in 1983, the film stars Peter Riegert as McIntyre, a corporate exec who's really more of a telex man, just like Jonathan, but gets sent to Scotland by his boss, Felix Happer, played by Burt Lancaster, to secure needed land for the Knox Oil Corporation. He's paired with Olsen, played by a very young Peter Capaldi in his film debut, to try and negotiate the tricky waters of Furness, Scotland, while keeping Mr. Happert happy back home. Rob, when was the first time you saw Local Hero, and what did you think? I have to say that, uh, sadly, I did not get to see it until probably a year or so ago when Criterion put it out. And as Criterion was doing, they would put out the, um, the Blu-ray DVD, and then they would put it up on the channel. So I watched it on the streaming, 
And I'm going to ruin just a tad bit of Jonathan's uh, excellent introduction to his book, where he kind of talked about Scottish film industry and him being a little bit older than me, a few years, not too many. My introduction to Scottish film, I have to say, even though, as I've talked about uh, Scotland on this podcast before, my mother being from there, um, my knowledge is very small. So it's like Ken Loach and then Danny Boyle, and that's it. I did not know about this film until Criterion put it out, and I was like, oh, okay, Scotland. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, okay, so it's Scotland and it's oil, which are two things that are connected to my family and Aberdeen gets a call out in here because my family's from Aberdeen. That's where my mother grew up. Uh, my uncle still lives there. And he worked on an oil platform in the North Sea uh, for 30 years, my uncle, David. And if you go to Aberdeen, go to the uh, Shipping and Platform Museum. It's a fascinating piece of history talking about all that over there, uh, which my grandfather was tied into the shipping angle. So for me, it was an, an interesting little film. And it's it's a very subtle film. There's a, a, a link that I sent you uh, just recently to a behind the scenes from 82, 83 that was shot in which one of the producers talks about it's very subtle comedy as opposed to sort of these broad uh, satires that uh, American filmmakers were doing at the time, starting in, he, he puts it down to Mel Brooks uh, in the mid seventies. To me, it's, it's, it's just really nice piece and it fits into a couple of other categories, which I want to talk about later uh, in reference to what I will call kind of um, corporate film in this period, kind of a little bit later though, in America, I think we start getting into more of that kind of stuff, but I thought it was a beautiful little film it talks about, I think, what a lot of people who uh, work in a business or an industry sometimes feel like here in America, where it's that striver culture, especially in this period when we're talking about in the 80s. So, you know, you can definitely feel the stamp of uh, Thatcher and Reagan on this one, I guess you could say in certain ways. She even makes kind of a cameo appearance at one point. I have the prime minister for you now, Mr. Happer. Hold on. Mr. Happer, ma'am. Yes, I did. I tried it with the raspberries. It was delicious. Although I only had frozen. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Here's Mr. Happer now. Goodbye. Now, Jonathan has written a amazing book about Local Hero. Local Hero making him a Scottish classic. But I don't remember, Jonathan, if in your intro you talk about how you first came across this film. I'm very curious about that. No, well, first of all, thanks. Thanks for the nice words. That's uh, it's always great to hear um i know i mean to be honest i have no idea when i first saw the film uh unlike tremors i wrote books on tremors and highlander i can pinpoint the exact dates with uh with local hero as i also mentioned in, in the introduction for scottish people i think of a certain age it's a film that's just there it's always been there and there are certain things in scotland like um shortbread and whiskey an Iron Brew. I don't know if, if many of your listeners have heard of Iron Brew, which is like a our version of Coca-Cola. I think it's one of the only places in the world where uh, Iron Brew outsells Coca-Cola. But no, it's just a film that's always been there. So I probably saw it on the television at some point, probably on Channel 4, because it's uh, I think it's a film for film now. And, uh, and it's just a film that I've always um, enjoyed, I guess, and always wanted to watch it whenever it's on i wanted to watch it and i bought over the years uh the dvd i think it came free with a newspaper there was a time in the 1990s mid 90s when uh, in the uk they gave away dvds free with newspapers every sunday uh, and then i think it was outlawed but 
you could build up an entire collection of films, amazing classic films, just by buying the Sunday Times or the um, Observer or whatever. So I, I, I think that was probably when I first owned it was um, what maybe nineteen ninety six ish, and since then I bought the Blu-ray, and uh, yeah. So it's just as I, I, as I've said now, it's it's just always it's in our psyche really, and and things those phrases like um, are there two G's and bugger off. As I, you know, that those are just said all the time here. Those are of a certain age, anyway. Those are things that people just say if they're trying to tell people to to bugger off or to get lost. You'll just say it to someone, "Are there two G's and bugger off?" And uh, but funnily enough, today I was at uh, I do a little bit of screenwriting as well on the side, and was at a, a sort of um, event, just a coffee morning type thing for people who were, were just all writing scripts, and and everyone was of a certain age, and they were all a bit younger than me probably in their 20s and early 30s. And I did mention, I've written a book on Local Hero and I got a lot of blank, blank looks. So <laughs> of a certain era, yeah, it's it's maybe not as, as well known, sadly, but maybe the book will help a little bit. Maybe it'll inspire a few more screenings in the cinemas next year. I remember the cover art for this quite a bit, uh, working at video stores. And then I didn't see this movie until probably... I'd want to say 94, 95. My ex-wife was a big fan of this one. She liked kind of smaller comedies, and this fit right in. And she also liked Peter Riegert a lot. So I remember watching Crossing Delancey with her and a few other like kind of smaller comic stuff. And she showed me this, and I just fell in love with it. I really, really appreciate this movie. Just the fish-out-of-waterness. Burt Lancaster and just he he cast this huge shadow across this film, even though he's he's not really in it that much. But my goodness, does he have presence and just that kind of corporate madness that he has and that he runs this major corporation, but he really doesn't do any work related to oil whatsoever. He's just obsessed with the stars and leaving a legacy and the whole running thing with him and his therapist is amazing. And then you get over to scotland and just to see how mac mcintyre i love how peter rieger doesn't even have a, a, a first name in this he's just mcintyre just how he interacts with the, the locals this movie it's so well done and i love that it's very i guess episodic and just that you have these smaller vignettes throughout it and it just adds up to this wonderful tapestry and you really get to love the characters and love the movie along the way. And the more you watch this movie, the more you get out of it and the more you notice things. And I have to say, Jonathan, I'm going to just be complimenting you this entire episode because your book, you do such a great job of doing like a close reading of the film, also kind of taking little breaks and taking us more behind the scenes and really making me appreciate things that I had never noticed before. And also giving me a little bit more backstory as to some of these characters and some of the things that maybe got shot and didn't make it in or that were in the script and never got shot. It just adds to the richness of this. and makes me appreciate this film even more, which I really, I can't thank you enough for what you've done because I already had an appreciation of this film and now I love it even more. So thank you. Wow. No, well, well, thank you. Uh, and that's exactly of course what I wanted to do. And, um, a lot of the observations come from me, I think. There are certain things I noticed in there. We'll probably get to them later about, I mentioned at one point, the halfway point of the film, which I'd never read about anywhere else, about the comet 
the comet falling. Um, and, and some of them, of course, were, were gathered from speaking to the cast and crew. And, uh, and Peter Rieger, uh, you, you mentioned him. He's incredible. I didn't, I don't think I appreciate, um, appreciated him enough or, uh, appreciate him as, as well as, uh, as I did until I spoke to him. And also just watch the film again and again and again. But when you speak to him, and you, you of course have an interview later with him in, in here, and I can't wait to to listen to that as well to see what you, what you got out of him. You know his his memories of that film are incredible, and uh, and not to just go on about it, but just he's so aware he was so aware at the time that he was in a classic film, which I think is incredible. <laughs> to Rob's point, I mean we've seen corporate films and we see a lot more of them in the 80s and the 90s but i don't know of too many corporate movies before this one i'm sure there were probably some starting in the 80s but this one just really takes the cake as far as the whole idea of that clueless upper management and this guy who just is so uncomfortable with his life and i love when we meet him while he's stuck in that car and hearing that voiceover from the dj and just kind of setting us up with a lot of things going on. And then it's ironic in one of those making of documentaries. And I think, Jonathan, you mentioned in your book that there are so many making ofs of this. And even in one of those, it starts with the radio DJ talking about, you know, oh, they're shooting this movie here in Houston. And come on down, you might be able to see Burt Lancaster. But So it's it's kind of ironic that they had that and then also have the radio DJ in the, in the movie setting us up here. Yeah, meeting Mac and seeing that he cannot connect with people at all, that everything is done via the phone and behind glass, and that he's even calling his best mate at work, talking to him like 10 feet away. That's the way that they communicate. It it feels very similar to now when I'm sitting next to somebody and I'm instant messaging them at work, and I'm just like, am I turning into McIntyre? Am I more comfortable talking via IM than I am talking to somebody in person? Because some of that, I think, is a little lost on me because when I watch it, I go, well, that's just how people communicate now. Like, that's not that weird. But like in 1982 and three, that would have been like, what are you doing? Let's go walk over there. <laughs> like, don't call your secretary from your office. Go talk, like open the door and talk to a person, you know, and things like that. And just his his overall connection as as a character, he's completely disconnected. In that it's like, oh, you're going to be dealing with your you'd be dealing with your own people, McIntyre. And he's like, I'm not Scottish. I'm actually my family picked it. They thought it was a good American name. And then he's like, I'm not Texan either. So he's like a man from nowhere. Like he really has kind of nothing. And the only thing he has is the culture that he's in. And the culture that he's in is that yuppie striver culture. So of course he's got the car and he's got the suit and his hair's nice and like all of these things. So he's putting on this this really good performance in order to work within the corporate structure. And I just really love how malleable he is, either like by the time we get to the end, I want to say um, he really kind of comes to understand the value of things in, in a way that he just couldn't being in Houston, that he just couldn't working in that glass tower and talking to his uh, coworkers on the phone from the next office over. You make an excellent point, and I probably should have put that in the book maybe I'll put it in the paperback but just you know we watch him now and I think probably and he talks about being a telex man and and all this stuff just as you, you've outlined about being behind glass and things and I think it's easy for us to maybe laugh at him a little bit and say oh that's uh, imagine being like that and as you say we're doing that all the time you know we're texting people having converse, long conversations with friends via whatsapp 
And just, but why not pick up the phone? And and even, I mean, I suppose that's similar in a way, but even speaking on the phone, I think it's a bit better when they're in the same city or the same, uh, same house, perhaps, or office. We're kind of a bit like Matt now, aren't we? Even when he's having these conversations, they're all missing. You know, they're all missing that point. You know, the, this whole thing of, oh, McIntyre, you're going to go back to the homeland. And it's like, you know, he doesn't want to tell Burt Lancaster, no, I'm not actually Scottish. He's just like kind of playing along with it, nodding. And then when he gets on the phone with Trudy later on, just that it goes from kind of a nice little conversation, you know, oh, we used to be dating and you've got some of your stuff over here and you, oh, and you've got something of mine. And then, there, you know, he's ending the conversation with go piss up a rope. And it's just like, they, you know, even though he's trying to communicate, he just can't make that connection, whether it's in person or over the phone. And, he might as well be behind glass and he might as well just have the, the wire cut because it, it just isn't making it. And that he spends so much of this movie on the phone, even when he's over in Scotland, that phone box. I mean, that's why the phone box is there on, you know, the Criterion Collection, just so many of the poster art. That phone box is his tie back home. And again, so hard for him to communicate the way that he's got to get all the 10 pence pieces so that he can do that. And just that he's being constantly interrupted and disconnected and just, it really never comes together until Burt Lancaster comes across. And then Lancaster's just like doing a bad job here, McIntyre. Good thing I was here to stop with that caper. We'll probably talk a little bit later about themes and things. And, and it feels like there's actually quite a lot in this film that you could, you could focus on, but of course, the, the phone box means communication is a huge part of this film. And also, I think kind of uh, secrets almost, because everybody seems to have secrets. So they're keeping things from what they, what they actually know. Does, does that person know that, that they know that they know? And um, and that goes on to sort of like Marina, the, what, what, what is, uh, it's so much we can still talk about, but what, what is Marina? Who, who is Marina? What does she know? What does... Uh, does she know about the plans that her own company are are undertaking? And it's fascinating. There's so much to, to unpick with this film. Well, even when he gets over to Scotland and the guy that's picking up at the airport, Danny Olsen, the Peter Capaldi character, that he's hiding the sign. He doesn't want the sign to be shown. He doesn't want it to get out that somebody from Knox is coming over and is just holding it there close to him. And yeah, that, close to his chest. It's close to the chest, yes. And then I love your point about how he can speak all of those languages, which is a hilarious scene where he's talking about all the languages he can speak, but he can't speak Gaelic, you know, of, of all the languages <laughs> that he can't speak, basically his own language. It's like Russian, Japanese, and he just lists all of these things off. And he's just like, nope, not one of mine. I'm like, wow. Yes. Well, well, well. Again, language, I suppose, uh, is another another part of this. I suppose, even though everyone is speaking English, uh, they're all, as you've said, uh, what are they? Are they misunderstanding each other? Even though it's a common language, I suppose. So, yeah. The joke that I like to say about that one is, my mother, um, when she moved here in 1970, she had graduated because you could graduate at 16 in Scotland at the time, and when she came to the states. She had to go back to high school for another two years. But when she got to the States, the Oyster Bay, New York, and went to the high school to pick out her classes, she sat down to talk to the counselor and said, well, I'd like to learn foreign language. To which the counselor said to my mother, well, you already speak one. To which my mother goes, no. She's like, you know, I speak English. To which my mother said, well, I need a bloody chukter, is what she 
used to say to me as a kid, which which I think Jonathan would get, is, uh, you know, I'm not a hick, which means I don't live up in, you know, because really Gaelic is really only spoken up way north, you know, and up in the islands, you know, in the Shetlands and the Orkneys, really, so, today. But uh, But it was just funny that, you know, she came here and, you know, she was from Aberdeen, which is like the third biggest city in the in Scotland, but obviously this this counselor in high school thought she could speak Gaelic or something, you know. The Scottish accent in this film, uh, I mean, I think they tone it down quite well. I mean, for my years, uh, I don't think it's too strong. But but when you watch it, do you think, oh, what what was that? What did he say? Or is it okay for you? I think it's pretty okay for me. The only quote unquote foreign term that I'm not familiar with is the Kaylee. So I was very glad to see that and how you explained it in the book because they keep talking about the Kaylee, Kaylee, Kaylee. And then finally it happens. It's like, okay, Kaylee's a big old party dance type of thing. So I'm okay with that. But when they talk about it a few times before it actually happens, I'm just like, I'm not really sure what they mean, but it sounds like a gathering of some sort. So that's pretty much the only time. I mean, we don't get as, thick with the accent as we do with like like the old man who has all the armaments in hot fuzz or something like that where they have to have a you know a couple translators in order to get from what he's saying to you know the ears of, of simon Pegg's character in this i'd say it's pretty easy to understand though i also watch almost everything with subtitles on which is great for this movie because you get to see how they phonetically spell out all of the times that Peter Riegert's trying to say Mr. Urquhart and just seeing all of those butcherings of his name is great. I'm not a good person to ask since I was raised around people who spoke with, you know, Scott's accent. So, so I'm, uh, I, I know all these, all these things to a certain extent. Uh, I would say though, that I think it's easier on American ears than something like train spotting, even the redubbed, because they did switch a few things in, in the American release to make it a little more understandable in the voiceover from what I understand that one, I didn't have a problem with either, but I can understand how someone can hear that. And, and oftentimes what, what I note uh, when it comes to, to Scott's is the speed that really, when, when people get into talking amongst themselves and it gets fast, that it it becomes undiscernible to English speakers. Sometimes <laughs> Americans that don't understand what they're saying because of the speed. But there are some regional bits, and I know that up in the Northeast, there would have been a lot of Ken, you know, which is what my, my aunt says a lot, like Ken, you know, like, you know, up in that area would have been that, which I don't think Ken's used as much in like Glasgow or, or Edinburgh. That's mostly an Aberdonian, Northeastern uh, Doric, you know, as they would call it. That's true. That's true. And it, but it's interesting as well that uh, Bill Forsyth's early, earlier film, so he did kind of two films before this, um, That Sinking Feeling and Gregory's Girl, both of those films were really latched. When, when they went to America, they, they, they came under the scrutiny of the, um, the, the dubbing people, uh, particularly That Sinking Feeling, which when it was released on DVD in the UK, even back in about 2005 or six. I bought the DVD and it had the American dubbing on it, which was uh, which is atrocious. It's absolutely terrible, and um, a lot there were a lot of complaints. So they ended up re-releasing it on when it came out on Blu-ray. They found it was all to do with the print that they could find. The quality wasn't very good because it was such an old film and it was made very cheaply. And and so uh, yeah, even in its home country, it was his first film was butchered. And then I think it came out 
the BFI re-released on Blu-ray, and I believe it's one of one of their best sellers on um, the flip side label, and that's that sinking feeling, which everybody everybody should try and see both that sinking feeling and uh, Gregory's Girl. But uh, but it's interesting that local hero. I didn't ever when I was doing research, I didn't really see much or, or anything really about it being um, about the language being. Uh, needing to be re- redubbed or anything in in, the, in America, um, so maybe he learned something by that point. Maybe because there must be that discussion again. It didn't really come up in my interviews, but there must be a discussion higher up uh, about the the accents and things like that. I'm guessing behind the scenes. So, um, and I do get into that a bit in the book as well about the the fact that mainly it's people from Glasgow <laughs> that are that are in the film. Uh, and one one guy is from Golspie, which is where I used to live, actually up in Sutherland. And his accent uh, is the accent I think most people would probably have if they were born there, anyway. In fairness, in the real fairness. But no, it's uh, it's fast. It's it's good to hear that you 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 get the get the jokes, Mike. And I think it might be maybe another seven to ten years after this movie came out, so it'd have been like late eighties or early nineties that you started to have someone like Billy Connolly in American TV. And so Billy Connolly is, is, you know, Glaswegian. So his his uh, accent can be a bit heavy at times uh, for certain folks. And especially when he's doing the stand up, like I say, you know, there's times I listen to his stand up and I don't know what he's saying. And I'm usually pretty good <laughs> at being able to pick it out. I guess, too, it's a little unfair because I grew up like with Monty Python and the young ones and these kind of things. So like my mom has major trouble when she's watching anything even just british stuff she has to turn on the captions i mean i'll turn on the captions for something like sexy beast where it's just like what are they talking about here because you've got like the criminal patois as well as the thick accents but i'm just like okay but you know for the most part my ear is attuned to a lot of that stuff though i thought it was kind of funny when uh in one of those documentaries burt lancaster saying like oh yeah when i met with met with Bill Forsyth, I couldn't understand anything he was saying. I was like, Forsyth in those interviews, he he his accent does get pretty thick sometimes. Lancaster does say that a couple of in a few a few different interviews. Yeah. I think he said it was difficult working with someone who spoke no no language. But that's the Glasgow. I mean, Bill Bill is from Glasgow, so um I suppose there's that probably the same around about the same area as uh as Conley, Billy Conley. It's pretty hilarious to watch those because there's probably like three or four different little interviews and, and um, documentaries on the Criterion disc. And I watched them all in a row and you get to see where those interviews were kind of all taking place at the same time. It just looked like they were using different sections. There's that foresight in the bar and you just see him in the bar over and over and over again. And these different things are just like, wow, how long did this interview go on? Because they just were chopping it up and using different pieces and different you know segments. It was pretty great. There was the one where they're kind of going back and forth between Houston and Scotland and just showing like the order that things were being made in. I mean, just fascinating stuff and that they actually went to Houston to shoot some of this stuff. But then, you know, Happer's whole office is all shot in Scotland, which is is great. You know, they just kind of use a fake backdrop out the window kind of thing because they really want to make sure that we this is set in two very specific locales. But then it's fascinating to me you talking about how Furness isn't a real place and that it's kind of and, and correct me if i'm wrong it's, it feels to me like the city and the beach are two different locations and they're separated by a great expanse of, of distance correct 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yes. Um, Roger Murray Leach, who was a production designer, um, ended up going, I think he went himself first. He, he took a drive around most of Scotland, really, in his, in his car. He knew Scotland a little bit, but he took off in his car and just went to all these uh, all these little villages and towns because he had to find somewhere that had the village and the beach, the beach beside it that they could they could shoot on. So he went all around Scotland and then went back down to London and said to to Bill, "I can't find one." And I think Bill Forsyth thought it would be relatively easy uh, because, without going into all the detail about Bill Forsyth's background, he started in documentary, so he knew Scotland very well from going to the islands and going around the west coast of Scotland, which is very beautiful and rugged. And um, you know the, the the sort of more mountainous areas are certainly on the west coast. Uh, not that there are many mountains in in local here, admittedly, but those beaches, a lot of them are stunning, and on the islands are are just uh, incredible. They could be you could be in the Caribbean, you know, some of these islands. Uh, so yeah, so it should have been easy, but he couldn't find it, and then they went back up, and, and it was kind of decided that yes, let's film the village on in, in the northeast of Scotland in, in Aberdeenshire in a village called Pennan, P-E-N-N-A-N, which is tiny. And there's ro- one road in, uh, one road out, it's the same, same, the same road. And uh, and then the, 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 the beach is all filmed on the west coast. So um, Camas Darach Beach, it's called. And um, Arasig Beach is a bit there as well. So, and funnily enough, my for my Highlander book, I went to Camus Darek, which was before I started doing my local hero book. Uh, Highlander was filmed kind of two beaches down. There's a scene of of Sean Connery and uh, Christopher Lambert running along the beach. It's filmed just about 10 minutes walk from Ben's Beach in the film and in, in local hero. So I'd been there for one film uh, and then didn't need to go back for, for local hero again. But it, but it is fascinating when you do go there. And I hope every, everybody listening to this goes because it's beautiful. There's just this little house on the sides of the beach. And it turns out, as we'll talk about later, the it's the church. They turned it into, into a church. They built a fake church around this little, little house. So I think it took me a few years. The first time I saw it, maybe 10 years ago, I probably didn't quite realize that that house was the church. Uh, and then the second time I saw it, it I, I realized it. So it's it's uh, it's just a brilliant part of the world. And they don't shout about it too much either. When you go there, you wouldn't really know you were on a famous beach. There's no big signs or things to, to tell you that. So the, you need to know if you're a fan, you'll know. But it's a great place to visit. They do a great job, too, of setting things up by using that huge model. And I love when we're in Aberdeen and we go into that room and we've got the scientists there and we meet Marina and we meet these two scientists. And then, you know, this movie, it's I've said it before and I'll keep saying it throughout this whole discussion. It is hilarious. So when you get the scientists and they're talking about, oh, we tested this, you know, the this structure will stand for a thousand years and will be uh, around during the ice age. And we tested it out and they just start talking about the ice age and how you can prevent the ice age and just like going off the deep end. I just love it. And I love how these characters, they're so quirky, but it doesn't feel like cutesy quirky. It's just like everybody has their own form of madness in this movie or their own little thing that they do. Like, I mean, you know, Dennis Lawson is, uh, Urquhart. I mean, he's got so many weird quirks and stuff. Just, I love that 
you know, he's he's constantly fucking his wife, you know, the way the way that they just pull that power move by killing the rabbit, all of these things. I know I'm kind of skipping ahead, but just everybody's got their own little things that they're doing. And it starts with, you know, Mac and the telephone. And even before that, it starts with Mr. Happer and the way that he's falling asleep during his own presentation. And I love that they uh, went in and and redubbed all of those corporate execs voices to have them whispering i mean because it starts off with a joke like that with this amazing like here's this corporate video here's the boss who's sleeping and then having all of those men talking very seriously but all in hushed tones is just so freaking funny to me because when you work in a corporate environment you probably have wanted to sleep through those things but knew that you couldn't so the boss can get away with it instead so that's you know <laughs> well what's me I don't I don't think it's mentioned in the final cut I get a bit confused sometimes because I've read the scripts versions of the scripts and Michael know and you guys will know this having done enough podcasts and read all the different scripts and books um, but I don't think it's in the finished film that they talk about the fact that he's asleep is because he was up the night before you know, stargazing. So that's why he's asleep because that's his life. As you said, he's, he doesn't care about the oil and, and the, all the stuff that is making him billions. He's, um, yeah, he's in his little private uh, observatory and he's, he's watching the stars. Um, but also just to say about the, the, those guys in, uh, in, in Aberdeen and in, in that laboratory type place. Uh, I remember reading an interview with, I mentioned the screenwriting stuff. I've been reading lots over the last few years about screenwriting and Stephen J. Cannell, who created the A-Team, um, he, I read a great interview with him and he said, always give your characters uh, a yesterday and tomorrow um, so that any character has has a past, basically. And I think that's exactly what you're saying about those guys. There's, there's an underlying tension there where they talk about how the ice age and how they could force an ice age and things and how the, I think it's the people above them. Clearly this guy's crazy. Geddes, I think it's Geddes and, and uh, who played by the brilliant Ricky Fulton, who is, uh, is one of Scotland's, uh, you know, he's like the Bob Hope almost of Scotland. He's kind of one of those characters, those actors slash comedians who was for decades, just always there. He was on Christmas on television every Christmas. He had a thing called Scotch and Rye. And it was on Hogmanay. Hogmanay, sorry, not Christmas. So Hogmanay, which is New Year, our New Year. Um, so everybody would watch him. Millions of people would watch him every New Year. But to see him there just with this this sadness because he's not getting to do his mad experiments um, is amazing. So, And that's just something that goes through the film is, is all these amazing characters who all have a backstory, even though we just get that little glimpse of it. And, and so many films, of course, just don't do that. And so many writers don't put that into their, their scripts. People come on, they're quirky for no real reason. Whereas with a lot of these characters, okay, there's a quirkiness, but it's almost like you can sense that there's a backstory to every single one of them. Bill Forsyth is, is a bit of a genius with that stuff, I think. And for me, the miniature really kind of sets up several different things. One, the geography of the place. So that that way we know, okay, this is what they're planning to do. We've seen the you know, this is the, this is the goal. And I also think that it sets up this aspect of, I guess, like madness or something like there's this piece of just, wow, you guys are really, you would go out of your way to spend all this money to build this thing. And then it was funny because I just recently watched, um, and sadly, they don't distribute his stuff uh, technically in the U.S., but Adam Curtis 
And Adam Curtis does a lot of documentaries for the BBC. You can find him bootlegged on YouTube. And if you haven't seen any of his stuff, it, it's great. But the latest one that he did is on, um, it's called Trauma Zone, which is about the basically the fall of communism in Russia and then the fall of the capitalist experiment. So it's like mid 80s to 1999. And then Putin comes in at the very end. But there's a scene in there where there is a miniature like this. And it's about like for like warfare or there's some sort of planning exercise that like the the Soviets were doing as part of their like five year plan. You know, we're going to do the five year plan. We're going to build this town. So they had this little miniature version of it. And I just remember like little explosions going off and stuff. And he's like showing this uh, stock footage. So so it just recalled these scale models of maybe military exercises or something like that and putting it into that kind of context, I guess, for me. I just want to hit again on that yesterday and tomorrow thing because that is brilliant and you do get that feeling. You get that we have Trudy in Mac's backstory. You've got even Happer when he's talking about, oh, I saw the Northern Lights in Alaska a few years ago and just everybody has something. You have even... Uh, Danny just talking about his languages. Obviously, he's had to learn all of these languages, so he's got a bit of a pass as well. So, yeah, I really appreciate that. And then that we get a literal yesterday and tomorrow when they're driving into the village and we get the whole the fog bank. And that scene is great. And I love that you compare it to Brigadoon. And I actually, well, I tried to watch Brigadoon. That one's a slog, man. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not that good, but I, I, I appreciate that it has that same idea of like going through the fog bank and being in this mystical village and just that they spend the night there in the car with Trudy in the back seat. And so Trudy, sorry for listeners at home, Trudy um, is the name of Mac's uh, former girlfriend, but also the name of a rabbit that they hit with the car. And I mean, again, with great lines, you know, just like, oh, shouldn't we hit it with something big and put it out, out of its misery? He's like, well, we just hit it with a 2,000 pound car. But <laughs> 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 them going into the village. And then I know I've seen this kind of thing before. And I think it might have been like, I Love Lucy or something, or maybe some other movie. I, I remember specifically in I Love Lucy, it was one of those where they're traveling to Los Angeles. And I think, I don't know how many. If that took a whole season or if that was like half of a season, but they get stu stuck in a little podunk town with Tennessee Ernie Ford and Tennessee Ernie Ford is um, the, the sheriff or the cop or whatever. And then they take him in front of the judge and, and Tennessee Ernie Ford steps up and he's behind the platform in the judge's chamber. He's like, oh, I'm the judge, too. And that so reminds me of Mr. Urquhart, who's just like doesn't say what his name is, but he's just like run, running the inn. But yeah, don't worry, Mr. Urquhart, the lawyer, will be over in his office by 9 a.m. I can guarantee that. <laughs> and just yeah. that he has – Gordon has such a presence in the town and that he really is just trying to rally everybody to just listen to him and wait and see and get as much money out of these Americans as he possibly can. And he just immediately, as soon as they come in, he's just sniffing that money. But it doesn't seem malicious. Like it could be – in the hands of somebody else, this movie could be, oh, the townspeople are all against these two guys that are coming into town and they're going to do whatever it can, whatever they can to up the price and just keep jacking up that price and figuring out ways to squeeze more money out of these oil men. 
but it never seems if I mean that is there that they are trying to get the price as good as they possibly can, but there's no maliciousness. It feels very genuine, even though to your point there are a lot of secrets and there's a lot of conversation going on behind the scenes, especially the church scene that we'll talk about. But it never feels like they openly hate Mac, even though he mocks him a few times, you know. We have a rabbit also. <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't feel like he dislikes Mac and the way that they kind of get – they're really mates by the end of this film. Now, these are very different, very different films. Maybe no one else quite sees this, but um, I adore Wake and Fright, the 1971, I think, film, uh, Australian film. I adore that film. Well, the reason I'm comparing them is because everybody is nice in that film to, to the main character. Um, John – Grant, I think. I'm just to remember. It's been a little while since I watched it, but everybody's nice to him. Nobody's nasty to him, and yet bad things happen to him. Uh, that's just for some reason that that kind of I, I what you're saying there. But everybody's nice to Mac, but there isn't. There's. It's not in a way. It's not even an, an underlying nastiness or uh, bad bad feeling. It's just. Yeah, this this everybody's just so matter of fact about things, and and the the Gordon character definitely never. I don't think he really comes across as as a bad person or or somebody who is he's clearly out for the money. But no, it is fascinating that you can have a character, and clearly the whole village, in fact, at a couple of points, are trying to um, well just get the best deal they can, and yet. Everybody's nice, and and I just think it's fascinating because not and not many films, not many films can do that. I think it's either just that black and white thing, isn't it? It's 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 okay. They're the scheming businessman or the scheming locals or the uh, the 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 sort of um, redneck characters that are just out to get whoever. So no, just it's it's so brilliantly done, and that you can have this affection then that grows, of course, between Mac and Gordon. And they're, they're, of course, they're not meant to be enemies. They're meant to be doing a business deal. But even then, they don't really come across as business, uh, as business rivals. There's just this, it's more a friendship that grows between them. So it's such a fascinating way to do that and, and brilliantly done. As the movie goes on, Mac is becoming more and more and more fascinated, uh, ingratiated with the village. And just that he is, after a while, he just doesn't care. You know, there's that moment where they're in a, a kitchen later on and he's like, I don't know, pounds or dollars. What is it? You know, and he's just like going back and forth. It's like by that point in the story, it's just like, I don't care what you what you guys want. It, it almost feels like he should just be like, listen, the top number is 60 million. And that's, you know, like, let's end negotiation. By that point, he has really started to fall in love with the whole town of Furness. And I, I love it. I love that he wants to become you know and the the name of the movie is local hero and when you think about the locals i mean there are very few locals in this movie i would say that probably ben on the beach is the local hero and it's not mac because he's not local it's definitely not the the preacher he's definitely not local and i love that he's kind of like the pre-Mac, like he came here all these years ago and just kind of got stuck there. And it's kind of, again, that Brigadoon comparison is really apt. That it's just like, you know, you come in, the fog lifts, you're in Furness, and then you just never escape. And I think that 
it's great that way. I think that the the preacher is just like, oh yeah, now, now I'm part of the community. He's right there and he's listening to Gordon. Gordon's telling him what to do. I mean, Gordon really tells him what to do quite a few times. It's just like, Gordon, we're five five pounds short for this or whatever. You know, it's just like, give this man more money or like keep keep this guy busy. You know, he's just telling the preacher what to do. It's like very, you know, he is kind of the de facto leader of the entire group, which I I really like that. And I love Dennis Lawson. He's so great. I've only really been exposed to him a few times. Obviously, Wedge Antilles um, from the Star Wars films. But then I watch, uh, was it New Tricks, the uh, BBC show with uh, the, the older cops in there. He's great in that. Anytime I see him show up in something, he's he's terrific. But I really like his role in this. And I mean, he, like everybody else in this village, is somebody that I want to get to know more. You know, every single person, be it the, the kid on the motorbike or the the old man who constantly is repainting the sign on his boat. I mean, every single one of those characters is somebody that I want to get to know more. I suppose I've said before already just about that, that the way that Bill Forsyth has written them and, and given them that amazing background, um, even though you don't see a lot of it. And and the fact that, in a way, we shouldn't like them because they're they're the ones... <laughs> like, Mac, what, what we don't see in the film and what is touched upon in the script a little bit more is the devastation that that this oil platform and this you know this village is going to be wiped off the face of the earth and that's a huge that's a huge thing and and it's mentioned a couple a little bit about mexico i think it was where where mac had his previous adventures and at one point in the early draft of the script he's called um i think it's mexico mac there's some strange things with with so nicknames for people, and um, so so that's kind of phased out. But I think if they had left some of that dialogue in there, the audience would be going, "Wait a minute, this is because you." Do, I just don't think it really registers too much as, as as a viewer in this version. That yes, these people are quite happy to see their beautiful village destroyed and um, <laughs> you know take the money and run. So yeah, in a way, we, sh- we sh- what you're saying, you shouldn't in a way be seeing that. But brilliantly, you are, and we we do. We want to meet these guys and 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 go and have a a a, a drink, a, a pint, or a whiskey in the bar. Very very clever. I just also love the uh, the exchange, if that's a, a way to say it. Is that how Mac comes in and he's very much like, oh, you know, I've got I've got the car, I've got this, I've got the money, and then you have which you know, it's basically a fishing village. And you've got the various fishermen talking among themselves about getting a Maserati or a Porsche. And it's like, you can't have the Maserati with you nuts. And they're like going back and forth. So I, I love how it's like he exchanges this aspect of himself with the village. And then he kind of adopts the village because by the end where he starts to wear those sweaters, like the men in my family wore those kind of sweaters in the late seventies and early eighties, so he looks the part of people from that you know neck of the woods. You stopped just a, a second too soon when you're talking about the the Rolls Royces and the Maseratis. Oh well, you don't want the Maserati. How are you going to carry around a couple lambs in there? <laughs> right, right. You need the Rolls Royce for its versatility. <laughs> yeah, oh, so I just so love good. that. Well, so it's good. just that, that way that the, the Bill Forsyth does just drop in on, on some conversations, and uh, and I think the Kaylee is is of course the the main time that we will see that. But 
it's like he is eavesdropping, isn't it, on different conversations and and there's just that, that snippet there of, of Maseratis and Rolls Royces. Well, those two old guys at the Cayley who are talking about things and just, oh, the younger people, they're all into this. And it's like, well, how much did Gordon offer you? Oh, 1.5 million. And he's talking in like 10% of this or that or the other thing. And just that after they're done talking, how they kind of like smile and start to dance and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, that's really nice. Like, you think that they're really angry about this, but then secretly they're just like, yeah, things change and we're going to cash out and make a lot of money off of this deal. And I think even in more kind of smaller ways too, like I didn't think about it until the recent rewatch was the whole question around scotch, right? Because when he gets there, they're like, oh, this is a, I don't know, it's like a 42-year-old scotch or something. It's some very special vintage. And then he goes to the Kaylee and goes, I don't have any more of that. And he goes, okay, well, how about this? And he like does the math, like give me 212 and 48, you know, your old scotches and put them all together. So he goes, okay, that'll work. So the idea of, okay, you're used to having these fine vintages. And then by the end, he's like, eh, you know, I'll take, I'll take what the common folk enjoy. I don't need the, the, the special stuff anymore. Jonathan, you bring up something really fascinating too in your book, which is why Danny? Why have Danny at all in this movie? Because really, you could take the Danny character and the Mac character and smush them together into one and give this character this whole, you know, either it's Stella, and we'll talk about Stella, or it's Marina, because really, you you don't have Mac have a romance, but you have Danny have the romance. And it's like, okay, you're taking that away from your main character, which is odd, because most of the time you're like, Oh, fish out of water. He comes in. He falls in love with the girl. He doesn't want to leave. But Danny is the guy who has that side adventure, the way that he runs down to the beach every single morning trying to find Marina, who is a scientist slash possible mermaid. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I always enjoy that when we find that she's got these webbed toes and and she seems to know a lot more about some things than she maybe should um, she's got this whole thing how she proposed and talk about corporate stuff. She proposed to the corporate bosses. Uh, how about we turn this into this whole marine wildlife uh, conservation center? And I want to say that Knox probably saw that. And that's probably what put Furness on the radar and just said, oh, oh, Furness. Oh, this would be a great place. They check this for oil deposits. And oh, this is the best place to drill takes her proposal just throws it away and then suddenly it's like oh send mac out here and it's the whole thing that we get at the beginning when the men are, are whispering you know oh here's this place that we need and we want to have this and you know we're not talking hostile territory here folks these people speak english this isn't third world kind of thing I, so yeah this whole idea of taking danny and, and putting him off to the side and and letting him have this romance i really like that and i like that we do have these two very strong protagonists rather than just one, rather than just Mac, because we get to see how the village chains changes both of these men. I was sort of alluding to that a little bit earlier, talking about Marina and, and what, what does she know that does she actually know all along that, because she says something about yeah, that'll never happen. I think when they talk about the, the, the and she um, points up, she points up yeah. at the Aurora and like knowing that the Aurora Borealis is going to save this whole village. Yeah. So once again, it's someone knowing something more than the other characters and also more than the audience. 
And that's the same, of course, with those villagers who are gathered in the, the, the pub, I think, at one point when Matt comes in and they know that, uh, again, it's it's just that slightly, you know, me talking about being slightly confusing by saying they know that he knows that they know that she knows that all that sort of stuff. So no, it's just, it's just a multi-layered thing. It's such a, and Bill Forsyth talks about this being such a simple film. And, and I mentioned that in the back of the book, it's a story. There's not really a story there. It's the bits in between the story that this is about. And he makes it sound so simple as if, Oh, it just came together. And, and but actually it's, there's so much going on, isn't there? And, and, in between and people trying to trick each other or, or just know more than each other. But then as, as I've also said many, many times now, nobody's nasty. Nobody comes across as nasty. They're just out for the best deal. I suppose they can get. It's the moment that I absolutely love when you're talking about who knows what and when Danny watching all of the people leaving the church and he can see that, but Mac can't. The way that we have Regert facing forward and Capaldi there looking back and seeing all of those people leaving, and he doesn't say a word. He just does not say to Mac, well, what's going on over here? Or I think the villagers are aware of our negotiations or any of that stuff. I love that moment, and it's so well done. And we've been talking a lot lately uh, about foreground background stuff and just that whole joke of the background with all the people leaving – while you've got Mac up front kind of pontificating, so beautifully done. And just, yeah, the, it, this movie is not simple. <laughs> you know, I think Forsyth is really taking the piss. I mean, this movie is not simple at all. It's just so well done. And, you know, we, I mentioned Stella earlier, and I think Stella kind of like suffers from the edit a little bit, but the story's still there in pieces. This whole idea of Mac falling in love with Stella, Gordon's wife. There's not really a good reason for him to fall in love with her other than that she's there kind of thing. But, you know, by the end of the movie, he's like, Gordon, you go back, you take my life and I'll take your life. And it's like, well, what about Stella? Well, I was meaning to tell you about that. <laughs> this whole thing. I, I love that you point out, you know, like your book is, is, is such a great resource. This whole thing of why is Mac eating those chocolates and why is he kind of dejected after he comes in and sees Gordon and Stella dancing together and the way that he puts that bag of chocolates down on the table. I never picked up on that before. I never would have known that he asked Stella in a deleted scene, you know, what what she likes and then goes out and makes a special effort to get these chocolates. But knowing that, you know, he finds out that he will never have her, but he still is kind of obsessed with her. I think it was smart that they took that out of the film. I think that it doesn't need to be there. I think concentrating more on the Danny Marina love story is much more appropriate. And just that Gordon and Stella are so into each other and just fucking whenever they possibly can. I really like that little side plot. And then especially Danny just being like such a little kid sometimes, just like, do you think that they do it every single night? Yeah, and, and something I hadn't noticed until I think it was Rieger that, that told me, and 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 then of course you can not notice it is that uh, he sees Gordon and and Stella dancing, and then later on, uh, Mac is dancing with with Stella, and it's kind of his dream, his fantasy has come true, and yeah, dreams do come true in this film a little bit, and uh and and there's just a few of those sort of echoes uh, or bookends almost of of things happening in the film and but there's that lovely moment back in the the hotel after the guys have been on the beach with ben 
and uh, we've already had the, the the moment with oh what's his name Gideon the the chap painting the boat with silver dollar and he keeps saying no that scene no, is amazing no. I love that scene that's a brilliant scene and I've always remembered that one but I'd never really I well I complete I just had never picked up on the fact that in that later scene in in the in the hotel mac becomes gideon because he starts saying to to gordon gordon says did you not like the music and he's just like no you, you never liked it no i it never clicked i don't know if it had, if you guys had ever realized that before but it's just something that you think oh yeah of course that's yet another thing which was actually improvised funnily enough the, the actors were really on the same wavelength as bill forsyth while making this film and some of the best moments are or actually improvise. That was one of them, but yeah, just a lovely, another lovely moment. Had you had you noticed that before? Had it registered? To be honest, I don't think I had really picked up on Gideon and the boat painting. Like I knew that he was doing it, but I didn't realize that he kept starting over and was trying different names. I also didn't really pick up on how Mac starts to realize that the dirt bike driver would be coming by like that. He gets startled the first few times and then he starts to figure out the rhythm. And then at one point he stops Danny from crossing the street. I'm just like, Oh, he's now in the rhythm of Furness. I really got that. And then the other thing too, obviously that the women's names and Stella meaning star and, you know, like he finds his own star in the way that, you know, Lancaster is always looking at the stars and, and, you know, the idea of, you know, blending the two where it's like, oh, we'll open a sea and space, you know, star place, you know, together, you know, kind of idea. But the other thing is, too, is that it does have certain tropes of the time. And one of the things that I put in here is like, oh, God, I'm like, I, I think he was kind of making fun of that in film. But at the same time, it feels a little dead on. You know, there's kind of that drooling straight guys looking at the girls in the bikini kind of thing mm -hmm. where where Marina dives into the uh, into the miniatures tank to do something. And they're just kind of like, you know, mouth open, like can't really talk to her, you know, while she's in the bikini. So I'm just like, that's a that's a gag that I've seen so many times in 80s films, you know, like woman in a bikini and the guys can't think straight. And the way that um, Mac and Danny, the way that Danny's got her coat and Mac's like, no, and takes it away from him so that he can be the one to give her her coat back. It's like, oh, is there going to be a romantic rivalry here? And I'm so glad that there's not. You talked about the names and Marina, the sea and everything. And that's hilarious that she wasn't originally named that in the script, I think I read, Jonathan. Well, this is what Bill Forsyth says. Uh, and uh, yeah, is that true or not? Uh, I don't know. Is he, is, he, is he fibbing there? Because it seems incredible that he didn't work that out and uh, that it's an accident. So yeah, but yeah. So he says, yeah, it wasn't wasn't him. He had a different name. And then a friend of his said, oh, my my friend is Marina, I think. And so he just used it by chance. But hard to believe. But I love when they say, oh, she's got great lungs. And it's like, oh, okay. Great set of lungs, yeah. I, I, do, I think Marina comes across, I, I think she comes out of it best. I think, yeah, Stella, although I don't think she's... Um, she, I don't think, I think she's a good character, but she, she's not as, as strong as she maybe could be. But, but there are comments. The, the, the fact is that, that Stella does own the, the pub. You know, it's her, she owns the hotel rather. Um, and that's, so that's quite a nice, that's a nice thing, you know, so that, so the woman is in, is in charge really. But at the same time, Stella doesn't really get as much screen time 
as she possibly deserves. And I think Jennifer Black probably deserved a bit more of that. So, uh, but I think probably more other people might be a bit more damning of the treatment of women in, in this film. I just, I suppose I'm just sort of used to it. But I think if you were to sit, sit down and, and analyze it completely, you could probably come away and write a book on that, just the treatment of women in, in this film. But no, I think for, for the time and also just with so, so much they had to fit into this film, I think I can sort of give him a pass on that. But maybe someone doesn't, you know, other people might not agree with me. Because we haven't even talked about the Russian, the way that he comes into the story, the whole idea of the baby. I love that scene as well with, uh, you know, who's, whose baby is this? And everyone just looking there perplexed. <laughs> and it's like, well, maybe it's the Russians, maybe not. We don't know. And just, yeah, that, that whole thing and the, how the Russian is there for the Kaylee, but he just immediately comes in for the negotiations as well. And then that he and Gordon have this amazing relationship and this whole thing of like Gordon talking about um, investments and just Gordon kind of, again, being like his accountant as well and really taking this other stranger, another person who comes to Furness and doesn't really belong there. But yet, he, as soon as he comes in, everybody knows who he is. Everybody seems to love this guy to the point where he gets to stand up at the Cayley and sing this terrific Mark Knopfler song about the Lone Star State and talking about how it can be so lonely. And I just, I love that that's basically just talking about Mac right there. Yeah, Mac walks by, doesn't he? Just just as he's singing that song. And, and, and again, that's, of course, not a coincidence. But yeah, that Russian character is fascinating, Victor. And um, yeah, the actor, I don't, I'll, I'll maybe mispronounce his surname, Christopher, I'll say Rosiski, I think it is. Uh, he was in a series, a TV series here in the UK called Casualty, which ran for, well, still running, actually. It was running, I think it's it's been running, I don't know, what's that, 35 years or something, 30 years at least. Uh, but he was in it right at the beginning. So I remember he played a porter. He was always pushing trolleys and things around. So he was a fantastic character in that. So it's really nice to see him. He died, sadly, a few years ago. Uh, but he was he was just a great actor. And, and he, he's, he makes such an impression. And uh, and and it's also was interesting for me speaking to the other actors that were in the, the film, uh, including Sandra Vaux, who played Mrs. Fraser, who runs the shop. And they all had their ideas, like we've already talked about at length about their um, backstories. The character, the actors, a lot of them had their own ideas of of what had been going on before. So in her mind, uh, the Russian Victor was having an affair, I suppose, with most of the women in the village, I think, uh, and, and particularly her. And of course, we see that because there's a close-up at the Kaylee of her just looking longingly at Victor singing his song. And, and yes, the baby was almost certainly uh, Victor's <laughs> baby. Um, yeah, no, he's a, he's another amazing character and just this this Russian that's obsessed with, uh, I suppose, capitalism in a way, isn't it? With with money, with um stocks and shares and, and things like that and and sort of upending the the view of the russian uh, a russian stereotype he's not a stereotype anyway the other character that we haven't talked too much about is moritz who i think the first time i saw this movie he was my favorite character this whole idea of this and i didn't realize that he is supposed to be happer's therapist i thought that he was somebody that worked at knox and he just had this weird relationship with but <laughs> right. that he his job is basically to come in and degrade happer and just tear into him he gives him a really 
I think it's pretty poignant, this whole idea of him saying, like, you know, are you so important that you can't be bothered with mortal things? You know, what about a wife? What about a family? What about children? No, you want to name these stars. You want to be out there and what do you want to call it? The Happer Comet and all this stuff. And that Happer is, he's a dreamer and he's just not thinking about what's here on Earth. That And Burt Lancaster portrays him so well that he is above all of it and that he's just kind of working at his own level and i would say like kind of crazy eccentric but also kind of genius at the same time i love that and then just the way that we get going with the moritz character and that he just gets more and more abusive and the funniest friggin part of this movie for me is when he calls happer and we get to see happer has everything in this office this amazing office even this kitchen that looks like it's in a home and when he calls him and he you know is abusing him on the phone and happer hangs up and he goes over and then he comes back to the phone i'm still here happer and you're still a useless mother yeah, and and then that brilliant moment where where he's 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 hanging on the outside yes. of the building. Yeah, Happer is a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's another uh, brilliant moment, and uh, and it was cut down slightly in in the edit. I think I think they filmed it all, but just Happer talking about how he's going to get to Scotland and all these complicated things. But yeah, the idea of who wants to shoot shoot him off the building is and he's so happy when he's walking out and all the cops are going past him and you hear the sirens and everything oh my god and yeah Bert Lancaster just has that voice he's got that so serious voice and he just draws you into that voice and I just love the way that he does that when he's talking when he's talking to McIntyre and he can't even call McIntyre by the right name when he gets to Scotland he doesn't even recognize McIntyre anymore he grabs Danny and starts talking to him he's just like you are so clueless I really got the feeling with Lancaster's character is that he's kind of like this absentee father God figure where it's like he's created the universe that everyone is in, but he's so disconnected from it. Like he's not involved with any of them. He's just so into his own head and what it is that he's trying to do, but he's created the scenario. And then when he finally meets up in Scotland, he goes, well, I'm glad I fix this before you, you know, your plot went off, you know, like making it sound like it was all on Rieger's character and you as the sinister one. There was a documentary I was working on. It was about 15 years ago that I never completed. That was about people that were into um, like dominance and submission and things like that. And I interviewed a, a pro dom and she says, you have no idea the kind of people that come to me. She goes, I've got cops and judges and politicians and heads of business and she goes it's because they have to make decisions all day that they come to me and they give over control so like i look at the therapist and go this seems like an snm scene this seems like a degrading you know like i'm going to degrade you because that's what you want or that's because that's how you feel that you know your your company and what your company does is awful so therefore i'm going to punish you for that awfulness you know, it works on several levels for me when you understand kind of people in high places and their own stresses because everybody thinks, oh, these guys got more money than they know what to do with. I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they sleep well at night. <laughs> Maybe not so. Yeah. And and Bill Forsyth talks a little bit about how he didn't. I mean, obviously, Happer is, is crazy, but I think Bill almost didn't tell 
um, Lancaster the full his full view on what Happer was or who he really was, uh, and there, that comes through. I think hopefully in some of the the little snippets that I've got in the in the book and little interviews that I found where Happer where Lancaster is sort of trying to grapple with who he's playing, and I think he's a I think he was a little bit baffled. Of course, he wasn't wasn't a fool, and he was a very very smart guy, and a, and a produ- you know produced some amazing films as well as, as acting. But I think maybe this character was just a little bit baffling for him, and and again, I, I suppose partly the accent as well of of Forsyth. But I th- it must have been strange coming coming all the way to Scotland and and just filming in this distillery, and you know, it must have been a, a, a strange time for him, but. Uh, but no, he is, he's amazing. And, uh, and people on the film talk about, or the, the cast and crew talk to me about just what it was. Uh, yeah. Incredible going to work on a, on a beautiful beach in Scotland. And there was Burt Lancaster sort of, I mentioned the Highlander thing as well. And it's funny to think that on that same stretch of beach within, uh, maybe 10 minutes walk, Sean Connery and Burt Lancaster both acted in different films. <laughs> You know, probably had their little winter or big Winnebago's just beside them. It's fascinating. Middle of nowhere on the on the west coast. Yeah. See, I could picture running into uh, Sean Connery over there, but Burt Lancaster, maybe not so much. I yeah. Mean, but yeah, that is wild. Yeah, we haven't really talked too much about Ben either. I mentioned that I kind of think that he's the local hero, but I agree. Actually, that's what I think. People do ask me all the time, "Who is it?" I think it's Ben, just because he saves the day I suppose doesn't he although not not in the eyes of the locals of the other locals but yeah I, I agree with you but other people have their their takes on it oh yeah I was definitely going to say that I mean to me he represents a sense of permanence because he talks about how his family's had the property for you know 400 years it was given by Lord of the Isles for I guess a, a relative who took care of something <laughs> oh yeah and uh, a little dirty business <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, he took care of that. So he gave us his property and have been here ever since. But I, I love the concept also of when um, Gordon comes to him and says, "You know, you're not going to have to work anymore." And he's like, "Oh, we have to work." So, so the idea of work as even if you had money, you would still there. There's still a need for there. That, there's a value that you get, and, and the idea that. In, in a lot of ways, all the characters represent, I, I think, really, the film is really like these these conversations on values. Ultimately, like I think it's Ben's vision that ultimately ends up winning out in a certain way. And I like how in um, in the conversation in the uh, that behind the scenes that I sent you, where um, they were saying, well, why why didn't you show them talking? Why didn't you show Lancaster's character and, and, and Ben talking it out and coming up with the negotiation? And he goes, I wouldn't even know what to write in there. And he goes, plus anyway, it's kind of like the Pope, you know, where he, he talks about in the interview, he goes, you know, the white smoke goes up and it's like, right. Okay. It's been decided. So the idea that people with power higher than you make a decision and then you're all affected by it. And these kind of strata or levels of, of power within a, within a society, or within an, an you know an organization in this way, so I just thought that was interesting. Not to say that Happer is satanic at all, but it reminds me of those pictures of like Jesus and Satan playing chess together, you know, or Von Sydow and death or whatever. But it's just like, yeah, whatever's happening behind these closed doors, you are powerless to stop it, to change it, to influence it. Whatever the best you can do is bring your sacrifice of roast beef sandwiches with 
mustard and salt or salt and no mustard up to the to the to the altar and just hope that everything is going to go well with them and yeah i i love this whole idea of ben being there for so long and then that ben's last name is knox and that he was the one that really started you know like his family's the one that are behind the whole knox petroleum is my idea of it and it's just like again happer is a stranger coming in i love happer just saying like Oh yeah, when we took over the company, my father didn't think to change the name of it, and that's why it's you know Knox and not Happer. But yet the street outside is Happer Way or whatever. So at least we've got that. Yeah, I, I love this whole thing of like Ben just like you know I'm fine with my beach. I'm good. You know I work the beach. Somebody's got to work the beach. I work the beach. You know you can sell me this other beach, but I still work this beach. You know just doesn't care about anything other than his beach this is his beach and he's going to work this beach and that's all he's going to do for all of his days that you know the guy doesn't even care that he doesn't have a door on his shack that he lives in this little shack and he's just content and jonathan i will again give you some kudos because i never noticed how many times we see ben in the film before he becomes a character before he actually starts to show up and before dennis says we've got a problem Ben's beach and the beach is Ben's that he owns this. And it's just like, Oh wow. You know, like he was in this for so much. And so after I read your book, I was just like, Oh, there he is. There he is. And then also the, uh, the, the animals and how many times dogs show up in the movie. Like I remember specifically the dog stopping the car, but I don't remember how many other times the dogs show up in this movie. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, you noticed the fact that I noticed Ben in the background. Well, again, it's that thing, isn't it? On the background things happening. It's it's something that isn't a lot of Bill Forsyth films. In, in Gregory's Girl, there's a, the, a a classic moment where there's a penguin in this school and uh, walking about, going through doors and getting pointed in different directions. Nobody knows why. Why is there a penguin, a child in a penguin suit? So I suppose in a way this is a little bit like that, but but no, again that just came from me watching the film and then thinking, wait a minute, I'd never even thought that there's Ben coming out of that shop, and so he's he's there, he's just in the background, and then there's another moment talking about background and also dogs, where Mac is sitting on the end of the the sort of jetty with Victor, and the night after or the morning after the Kaylee, and there's Andrew in the background trying to pet the dog. And missing, missing the dog. And that's just yet another moment of, of Bill just, just having something going on, you know, the foreground and the background. And if you notice it, I don't know if everybody would notice it because you're probably focusing on the front. But the more times you watch it, the more times you'll hopefully see it. And like, oh, yeah, there's another gag in the background. Happer, you know, like Rob said, the white smoke goes up and out comes Happer. And it's just like, okay, here's what's going to happen. And I love that Danny gets in there and is just like, well, what about the the sea? And here's this whole proposal. And he just basically sneaks Marina's proposal into this whole, like, you know, the, the Sky Institute. Like, well, what about the sea? The sea and the sky. I like that. I like that. Olsen, you stay here with me. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just sends Mac back just so unceremoniously. It's just like, you need a shave and you need to get on this helicopter, go back to Aberdeen, go back to the States. And his trip is so abbreviated and just it's so sad for me him going around and seeing everybody and then getting those final shots of the town as he's in the helicopter going back and seeing you know stella hanging her laundry Gideon out there painting another sign on his boat you know just like okay what has mac brought to this what has changed because of his presence 
has he even made an impact on this place at all, or have they just made an impact on him? And when he goes back to his apartment in, in Houston and just has all of that stuff in his pockets and takes it all out. I mean, I'm sure we've all been there. We've all gone on longer trips where we've got, you know, the detritus of things that, you know, we've taken back with us and he's just laying them all out and he's got that razor clam and he smells the clam and smells the sea. Such a great moment. And that, that moment for me just breaks my heart because I think of other times where I have been other places and I've come back and I just, you know, it's like, oh, I really left my heart in this other place. And I can tell that Mac has left his heart over in Furness. That final shot of the village with the phone box and you hear that phone ringing and no one moving. No one, it, it doesn't even feel like there's anyone in the village at that point. Was this all in his head? You know, is are there people actually still living in that village, you know, when he's calling? And I, I'm just put, putting my own spin on this, you know, this whole thing. Is he calling now to try to reach back out to a Gordon, to a Danny, to Stella, to anybody that he knew from the village just to reconnect with them through the phone since he can no longer be there in person and that nobody answers that damn phone and we cut to black and we cut to credits. I mean, that this movie, for all of the, the joy and the comedy, and I mean, I was laughing out loud quite a few times rewatching it last night. It breaks my heart at the end of it, but it's one of those movies where I'm okay that it's breaking my heart because I've had such a good time before that. But every single time I just think about friends that I have in other places and that some of them I will never see again. We don't know that that is even Mac phoning the village because we don't see him doing it. Of course, we know film so well in the language of film that we put two and two together and think, oh, well, that's him. But it might not be. Maybe Mac, yeah, maybe he's just getting on with his life and... But that's the, yeah, that is the incredible thing about this film, isn't it? That we want we want it to be him. Of course we do, because it means so much. And I'll mention just for people that that haven't read the book and, and might not, but or might just not know. Of course, there's that class. There is a famous, the, famously that ending is not the ending that Bill Forsyth shot. The last moment is there, which should have been Mac um, on the balcony looking out over Houston, and the film should have ended there. But uh, the uh, I think it was Warner Brothers were not happy, and they said it was too too depressing. And so, could he film another ending? And I think they actually wanted him to film Mac jumping out of the helicopter at the end, or or at least returning, flying back over again. And Bill said no. So he very cleverly managed to find a piece of footage right from the start of the film. And if if he left it running. A little like a second later, you would see the car coming down into the village from the start of the film, uh, and put it at the end. So it's a, and then of course just put the the audio of a, uh, of a of a phone ringing over the end. So just very. Uh, I mean, we could yeah. Bill Forsyth is a, is the word genius is 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 overused. Maybe he's maybe genius is too too strong a term. But in filmmaking terms, I think he's he's just one of one of the greats. For me, I could read that in a way like you were saying, him trying to reach back. But I also thought of it as he's out on the balcony and he's having that image. He's having that thought of there. And then the phone rings and it might be the next assignment to go somewhere else. So it's kind of like I returned back. It's kind of like I'm the hitman. I did my job. I go back home. I get the next call for the next job kind of thing, you know, because I get the feeling that, um, and, and though it's, as you said in the script, it's, it's more alluded to, he had done things in Mexico. There had been a previous history. 
that maybe he knew that I finally connected with a place, but now the daddy up on the up in the penthouse suite tells me to go back home. I have to go back to everything resets again. The universe resets in some way, and I got to do it all over again somewhere else. Yeah, it's it's, it's really sad. That's what you, you said, Mike. I think didn't you about it's so, such a sad moment to see him just back there on his own uh, with with those photos and and in the. Yeah, in the shells and in the script, it talks about how the photos will fade in the in Houston sunlight, and you say, "Oh, yeah, we've just watched this life, almost life affirming story, and then that's it. That's it for Max." So I, I hope, yeah, I wonder if he did go back. But that's like the reality, though. There are so so many times where, oh, they sent me over to China for three months, and I really connected with the people and the places and the culture, and just really enjoyed this. And it's like, well, sorry, assignment's over. Come on back to the states, and you're just like unpacking your your suitcases, and just like, oh my god, I'll never be back there again. I'll never recapture this moment again. Even if I went back now, it wouldn't be the same place. It wouldn't be the same people, the same circumstances, and it's just like. That's the reality. It's, it can't all be the movie dream of no, and then it goes back or jumps off the helicopter and falls into Stella's arms or whatever. And Gordon's just like, great, let's be a thruple. You know, that's not how it's going to work, guys. And Danny's the guy who, who gets the girl. You know, I, I imagine that now she's going to be very happy with him that they are building this the thing that she proposed that, you know, he is there trying to teach her uh Japanese and kissing on her knees and all of these things. And it's just like, yeah, like it feels like Danny really is the one that makes out at the end of it, but he deserves it. It's not like I'm thinking like, oh no, Mac deserves all the happiness. Danny deserves nothing. I wish Mac the best in the world. And I hope that, you know, after five, 10 weeks after this movie is over, that he's in a good place and that he is happy because I've grown to really care for this McIntyre character. Yes, and and it's also just also there. There's that moment with Harper on the beach, and Danny and Mac when Mac realizes that once again, as as I've said many times, there's that thing, something going on behind the scenes that Mac doesn't know about, which is Danny having that conversation and, and coming up with that plan, uh, and just that look on his face. And I think he's what does he say to to Danny? I, I you didn't tell me about that, Danny. Something like that, and he said, "Oh well, you know, it was just just something that that happened." And you think, "Oh, just that look in his face, just those looks that that Rigert does." The more I watch this film, the more I appreciate. Like I said earlier, the more I appreciate Rigert and what he's doing and and not doing in a way. But his without Rigert, any, anyone else doing that just would not have the same, just the same looks and the same expressions and the same um, underplaying it so much. Uh, and letting other people, and he talks about this in the book about letting, but the other actors being, you know, rubbing, rubbing their grubby little actor paws together because they they knew they were going to be the star of a scene, and just he was so generous to let other people steal a scene. Really, yeah, really, really appreciate Peter Rigert just so much more after watching this film again and again. Uh, yeah, it really, it really works the more you watch this film the more you get out of it it's 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 really does work well speaking of let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages with an interview with mac himself peter regard it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either every week the projection booth brings you a new show 
possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Thank you again for your time. I'm super excited to talk to you about Local Hero, but I'd love to know where you were in your career before you even got the role for Local Hero. Well, I had started acting in 1971. So by the time Local Hero showed up, which was made in 1982, the biggest success I had was in um, in the movies was Animal House. And I had done a lot of theater. I was part of an improvisational company called War Babies. I did eight months of David Mamet's play, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. So I'd done a lot of theater. By the time Animal House came around, I think maybe I had done two episodes of MASH. Uh, that's where I was in 1982. I'd done a short film for a student at NYU. I think one day in the movie Coma that Michael Douglas starred in, I think Genevieve Bougeau might have been in it. I can't remember exactly. Anyway, I played a young intern. It's one of the opening scenes where I believe it leads to the story. Somebody dies in, a, in an abortion, I believe. And there's two doctors in the background wearing white coats with masks. And I'm the shorter one. And I didn't have any dialogue. But, you know, to me, it was just a chance to learn what a professional Hollywood set was like. So I'm sure I was overacting with my eyebrows and my, but uh, with the two MASH episodes and this, I had a pretty good idea of what to expect if I were going to get a movie. Like I said, Animal House kind of changed everything because that's what an actor needs is some kind of, especially in a big culture like ours, you need, you need to be in something that gets the attention of the country. And obviously Animal House did. And for those who were curious, I now had a, a face to go with a name. That's a big deal. That was probably the first thing I ever saw you in was Animal House. And just what an indelible mark that made on the movies. It surely did. And the script was really brilliant. I thought Landis had cast it just incredibly well. And when we were finished, I think the last day we worked was in December of 77, maybe the first week. There's only seven weeks, that's six weeks of shooting and a week of supposed rehearsal, but all we did was get stoned and drunk. But 
I think Tim and I and Bruce McGill were chatting on the last day. And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, what do you think? And we basically felt it really, we, what we shot and who, the, who we had, the actors really were superb in the execution of their parts. And we thought it's really how well they tell the story. You know, because obviously a move, a, a screenplay is, is not the movie. It's the editing of what you shoot that becomes the movie. And as it turned out, eight months later, we were thrilled and delighted. But it's not like anybody knew, you know, that everybody that I always get that question. Did you know? No, I knew what it could be, but I no one knows what the reaction is going to be. I remember thinking at the time, wow, could this be the most successful movie I ever do? That's how big it was. And it probably was outside of maybe the mask. It was a cultural phenomenon. Do you go into every project thinking this could be another thing that sets the world on fire or you just kind of hope? No, no. Even early on, my choice was to follow my instinct, choose what I liked. It could be the screenplay. It could be the director. It could be the cast. It could be the location. It could be the money. There's lots of reasons that go into yes. And once I feel comfortable that I've said yes, I for the best. You know, there's four things that could happen. You can do a project well and it fails. You can do a project well and it succeeds. You can do a lousy project that succeeds and a lousy project that fails. Those are the options. And no one, no one knows, which is the famous, you know, you've been doing your podcast a long time. William Goldman is the famous creator of that or the author of that phrase, nobody knows anything. And he was pretty smart as a screenwriter and as a novelist, you know. You did Chili Scenes of Winter shortly after Animal House. Love that movie. Absolutely love that movie. Thank you. Yeah, that was a very lucky, people ask about breaks. And it's never one thing because it has to happen constantly. Not every day, not every week, but maybe if you're lucky, you get some kind of exposure once every three years. I don't mean a job every three years. I mean a job that gets people's attention. And yes, uh, Chili Scenes of Winter came out in November of 79. And there were two worlds. You know, there was big successes on an Animal House level. And then there were, I'm loath to call them smaller successes because it doesn't matter to me. I don't differentiate. I can tell the difference. $200 million payday for a big film. And I, I don't even know what, Animal House made in terms of today's money, but it made a lot of money that today would be the equivalent of whatever a big box office movie is. But sometimes your career is made by smaller films in budget. I don't mean smaller in impact or value. It's a fascinating dynamic, but I was lucky to get another film which tested my skills as an actor. And the company of actors I was in, you know, you couldn't be couldn't ask for better. So, you know, to answer your question, that's, again, where I was when that was 79. So Local Hero was 82, like I said. So how did you get cast and involved in Local Hero? I was doing a this mammoth play, Sexual Perversity in Chicago, with F. Murray Abraham and Gina Rogak and Jane Anderson, who's now become a very successful writer, screenwriter, and maybe a director even, I can't remember. But during that time, I became involved in a 
romance with Bette Midler. So we were living together and she had to go out to California in 1977. Well, I wasn't going to stay in New York. I'd already done the play for eight months. So I joined her out there and she was doing an interview with a reporter from England named Joan Goodman. Bette was getting ready. You entertain Joan while you know she gets ready because they were going to be photographer there and the whole thing. So I said, sure. So I probably spent at least a half an hour talking with Joan. This is 1977. 1982, Joan is interviewing Bill Forsyth on the release of his movie, Gregory's Girl. And as these, que- as, as these interviews end, she said to him, what's next? And he said, I'm doing a movie called Local Hero that David Putnam is producing. He just won an Academy Award for Chariots of Fire. David did, not Bill. And uh, she said, what, what are you doing next? And he described Local Hero. And Joan said, you should see an actor, American actor named Peter Rieger. He might have known me from Animal House, maybe, but she's the one who, who said, you should follow, check him out. You'd be lucky to get him and, and he'd be perfect for the part. That's how he heard of me, I believe, first. Anyway, I heard from my agent in January of 82 that was going to have a meeting with this writer-director named Bill Forsyth, who I'd never heard of. The movie Gregory's Girl hadn't come out. I didn't know anything about it. You know, he lived in Glasgow, and what do I know? There was some talk Burt Lancaster may be involved. There was some talk that Warner Brothers might be involved. They did tell me that uh, David Putnam was the producer. So I, you know, I hear it. I could hear, you know, pay attention to this. And on a Monday, I got the script, the same day the agent called. And my memory was American scripts are eight by 11. The British British scripts were like eight by 14. They were a really long thing. And this script was like 160 pages. I was big. Anyway, I uh, got the script on a Monday. And I, you know, I lived in New York City. And I was out being young and crazy and reckless and having a good time. And I probably got home five o'clock in the morning, something like that. And this is when I had the stamina to, <laughs> to do that. Uh, anyway, I like to read before I go to bed. It helps calm me down, knock me out. I start reading the screenplay. And two hours later, I had finished it. And I went, oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever, screenplay I've ever read. Well, 7.30 in the morning, I, no agent is awake. The agent in L.A. is already 3.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning. So around 10 o'clock, 10.30, I said, when am I supposed to meet him? Thursday. What time? We'll get back to you. It was going to be 6 o'clock. And it was going to be at a a hotel called the Mayflower Hotel on Central Park West and 62nd Street. It's not there anymore. Big fancy uh, apartment house now. And there was a, a bar in that hotel. And that's where I was going to meet him, in this bar. I didn't know what he looked like. So I roamed in at 6 o'clock, and I'm looking around, and nobody's coming up to me. And I see this guy wearing a kind of a, a blue-green leather jacket. It almost shimmered. It was, it was like that. And I figured, well, I'll give him a try. And I introduced myself. And, of course, he spoke with the thickest Glaswegian accent. So I barely understood what the hell he was talking about. Anyway, we sat down and started talking. And, you know, as actors are, it's, I'm trying to figure out a way to get this job. 
and I'm yakking away. And, you know, I don't know if it was my design to talk more than he did, but I was talking about the character and this and, you know, whatever themes I saw. And he was nodding and he's a man of very few words. And after a while, he said, and do you know who some of these girls are here? There seems to be quite a number of beautiful women. Know any of them? I said, huh? Because <laughs> I'm all I'm thinking about is I'm trying to get this fucking job. So I said, what did you who? He said, look over your shoulder. There's like a whole whole lot of really beautiful women. Who do you think they are? I said, oh, there's a car convention at the old, I guess the old convention hall, which is where uh, the Warner building is now on 59th Street. And uh, he said, oh, great. Okay. Uh, do you think you could introduce us to him? I said, Bill, I don't know them. And he says, but you're from New York. I said, yeah, but I think they're from Detroit. They're models here representing Ford and General Motors and, Christ, you know, all that stuff. And he kept going on. And I said, no, I, I don't know them. He said, ah, that's a shame. They're really attractive, though, don't you think? I said, yeah, they're really, they're really attractive. Anyway, somehow I steered the conversation back. And I'm sure we spoke for 40 minutes at least. It's a long time. And like I said, he didn't ask me a lot. And I didn't know what that was a sign of. This was on Thursday. So I said, do you want to have dinner? He said, oh, you know, I've got to see some other people. And I knew what he meant. He had to meet some other actors. And I said, oh, okay. How about a drink? He said, "Um, why don't you come back around 11? Come back about 11. We'll have a drink then. So I went out going, oh, my God, I just got to, you know, I'm in. I got a foot in the door. I came back about 11 o'clock and Bill was sitting there surrounded by like seven or eight of these models. And, you know, he's as charming as charming can be. It's almost a cliche. And I thought, what am I in Brigadoon? This is bizarre. And I went over and he said, oh, Peter, this is fantastic. This is Marjorie. That's Ellen. That's Joe. And he went and introduced me to everybody. He said, this is Peter Rieger. He's a fantastic actor. And they knew me from Animal House. So I'm thinking, all right, at least he's making that connection. Or maybe Chili C. But they were, you know, I don't know if that would have been their movie. Anyway, that was on Thursday. And he was leaving for Scotland on Sunday. So I kept saying, can I take you out for dinner? And he kept saying, yeah, I wish I could, but I've got, I've got all these actors. And I said, I understand. I don't, I don't want to put pressure on. Them. He said, but Thursday, why don't you, I mean, uh, Saturday. So I'm leaving Sunday. Why don't you come by Saturday? And we'll have, you know, a wee dram or something. I said, great. So I know he's seeing other actors. There's nothing I can do about that. I'll get the job. I won't get the job. So Saturday night, I pick him up and I take him to a hangout where actors th- were all the time. And it was called Cafe Central. It was on Amsterdam Avenue and 75th Street. And like an idiot, I'm taking him to the the place where all the actors hang out. And I didn't realize until I got there. And it had become very popular. And we walked in, and I think there were two godfathers and a consigliere sitting over this table. And Coppola's at this table. And then there were the court of ballet of the New York Ballet. I mean, it was wild, this place. And we hung out. And I got him back to his hotel around three or four in the morning and got him as drunk as I could because I figured if I get him drunk and I take him home, I'll be the last person he remembers seeing. And that's how it worked out in terms of that night. 
So he went back to Scotland Sunday. And what I learned later was that Warner Brothers wanted a star. So they, they were interested in Henry Winkler or Robin Williams. And Michael Douglas was in there too. I know he really wanted the part too. Anybody who read it wanted it. it it's not like I was special or anything. It was, it was brilliantly written. So I went out to LA and Bill arranged the screening or Putnam arranged the screening of Gregory's Girl for me because I just kept thinking, because I don't know him as a director. And I thought, can the person who wrote this direct this? Because it's, you know, it's a really incredible script. It was the movie. To read the script was to see the movie, uncannily. Anyway, I saw on a Wednesday, Gregory's Girl, and I fell in love with it. And there's a scene, I don't know if you know the movie, but there's a scene where Gregory and his girlfriend are lying down looking at the stars and the camera moves like a ballet. And I went, oh my God, oh my God, he can do it. He can do it. And my agent at the time in Los Angeles was a wonderful agent named Eddie Bondi at the William Morris Agency. His nickname was Eddie Bookham Dead or Alive Bondi because he once booked a woman who'd been dead for six months. Eddie got a call from David Putnam. This is now the middle of January. And Putnam said to Eddie, Bill's very interested. We're very interested in Peter, but there's lots of politics involved with Warner Brothers. So it's going to take two months. And that's what Eddie told me. And I said, okay, it takes two months. I, there's nothing I can do about it. But when Bill arrived back in Glasgow, half the crew was going to be Scottish, you know, because usually movies about Scotland or Ireland or Wales and in, in Britain are all played by the English. And Bill is a determined Scotsman. And he was going to have his cast, I mean, have his crew and cast, because mostly Scottish, come from Scotland. And Putnam totally agreed, but he want this was a, this is now Hollywood. So he wanted to give Bill as much support with the strongest team he could, as well as include Bill's favorite people. So when Bill got back to, um, to Glasgow, his friends said, so who's it going to be, Henry Winkler or, or Robin Williams? And uh, he told them, uh, I found this American actor, another actor named Peter Riegert. And they, and they all said to me, because I met them, and they said, oh, my God. Is Bill out of his fucking mind? He's going to turn down these two stars for this. We don't even know who he is. He'd already come close to making up his mind day I met him that weekend. I didn't know that. I don't, you know, I don't know what his process was. I've heard him say, you know, I just, I just felt Peter was right. So uh, two months later, so two months later, Belushi, John, John had died. And they were holding a memorial for him at uh, St. John the Divine in New York City on 110th Street in, on Amsterdam Avenue. I believe it's the largest cathedral in the world, which is hard to believe considering how many enormous cathedrals there are. Still unfinished, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, after Bruce McGill and Carly Simon and I walked down Amsterdam and we went, and we, you know, we, it was a very sad event. And we went to this place, Cafe Central, to have drinks. And, you know, we sat there and mourned John and how we thought about him and talked about how we thought about him. And then I went back to my place. I was 
subletting Carol Kane's apartment, 67th, just west of Central Park West. Beautiful place. So I, you know, I had some dinner. I went out for dinner and came back. And around nine o'clock at night, maybe 10 o'clock at night, it was a little earlier. It wasn't dinner. It was maybe around six or seven o'clock. I got a call from Bill Forsyth. He said, I'm going to be in New York on Wednesday. I'm going to be staying at the, uh, the Carlisle Hotel on Madison Avenue, like 70, 70th or something, or 67th, actually. Uh, come join me for a drink. And I said, oh, sure. Okay. What time? Wednesday? Well, six o'clock is probably good. I hung up the phone and I'm thinking, well, it's either going to be good news or bad news in person. And then I got a call from David Putnam's office saying Dave is coming in and he's going to be with Bill at the Carlisle. And would you join him for drinks at six o'clock? And I said, sure, that's great. So I'm thinking, all right, this is fine. But nobody said anything. They just said, come for drinks. They're just being polite over there. And when they fire you or don't hire you, they, you know, they take you out for a drink. Anyway, the night before that meeting, Tuesday, I got a call at 10 o'clock at night, 1030 at night from Joan Goodman, who's the woman who recommended me. And she called and said, congratulations. I heard you got local hero. Susie Figgis, who's the British casting director, told me that you got the job. And I said, wow, Joan, that's incredible. But nobody's told me that I have the job. And she went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, I hope I haven't done the wrong thing. And I said, no, no, it's very sweet of you to call. And it's very nice of, you know, Susie Figgis, the casting director, to, to tell you that. But nobody's nobody's told me. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope I haven't jinxed it or I've spoken out of turn. I said, don't, don't lose any sleep over this. This is a beautiful thing that you did. I hope you're right, but have a great night. And, you know, we said good night. And I thanked her again. It's 1030. Who am I going to call? The only people who know is David Putnam or Bill Forsyth. So I tried, I went out drinking, you know, I just, you know, not that I'm an alcoholic. I just, I got to find some friends and sit down and calm down. This is a potential big deal. And I went out and, you know, had more food and drinking and I got home and I was tired and fell asleep. So the next day comes and I go to the Carlisle hotel and there's Bill and there's David Putnam. And there's Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits, who was going to write the music. He hadn't written it yet, obviously. So the three of us are sitting around and I'm just, you know, hanging out and having a little drink and making polite conversation. And nobody's saying anything. Just talking. Yeah, you know, nice. About an hour goes by. And in my head, I'm going, this is the weirdest experience. But I said, okay, this is, we'll see. And Mark Knopfler said, he excused himself. He said, I'm, I'm finishing an album at, I think, a place called The Record Plant, if I remember correctly, down in, you know, probably I was down, downtown somewhere. And he looked at me and he said, I'll see you in Scotland. I think you're going to be fantastic. And I said, well, nice to meet you, Mark. It's a pleasure. And he left. And Bill doesn't say anything. David doesn't say anything. And this guy who's going to write the music just told me, I'll see you in Scotland. And I'm sitting there going, okay, I guess. I don't know. So we're making small talk. And, uh, and David said, why don't you come to my room and 
we'll do a little more chatting up there. And I'm figuring, okay, something's going to happen. So Bill and I and David go up to David's room. And again, small talk, small talk, small talk. And I said, listen, David, I don't want to seem unappreciative, but uh, it's, it's been a couple of months since I met Bill. And uh, uh, do you have any idea when you might know if I have the job? And he said, this is Wednesday. He said, Friday. Said, okay, great. That's very good. Friday's just as good as another day. And I and we talked a little bit more. And uh, I don't remember what we talked about because I'm going, wow, this is this is hysterically weird. But it's kind of like the movie, you know. And uh, <laughs> so I said, uh, we, you know, we said our good nights. And Bill walked me to the door and he said, um, why don't we get a drink downstairs? And I said, well, it sounds like there's a lot of drinking in this movie. So I said goodnight to David. Bill and I went downstairs. And like I said, very quiet man, very shy. We go downstairs and we go back into the Carlisle to the bar, just about where we were. And I, I'm determined not to say anything. That's it. I've talked myself out. I got nothing more to say. The waiter comes over and takes our order. And I got I got a single malt whiskey. I said to Bill, what's a good single malt? And he smiled and he, he told the waiter. And they went and Bill ordered something. And again, I didn't say anything. Bill didn't say anything. We just kind of sat there, looked at each other, nodding my head. The waiter came over and Bill lifted his drink. And we both went, cheers. Or, yeah, something like that. Or the, I think the Scots say slange, something like that. Anyway, so we clink glasses, and again, I'm not saying anything. And finally, Bill said to me, um, I didn't know you didn't know. I said, know what? He said, that you, you've got the job. I said, Bill, nobody's told me. He said, well, I'm telling you. So I, I have the job? He said, you're going to play Mac, yeah. I'm sorry nobody told you, but yeah, it's known for a long time. I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, quite a long time. And I said, now, Bill, this is Warner Brothers. This is Hollywood. This is a big deal. Burt Lancaster, big deal. I've done this long enough to know anything can happen. And I just want to tell you, I am absolutely moved to tears that you think I'm the person. But if something happens, I will totally understand. I absolutely will be destroyed, but <laughs> I'll understand. I've seen this before. I've seen this, this situation before. Not on this level, but in terms of thinking you have a job and not getting it. And he said to me, I wrote the movie. I'm directing the movie. If you're not in the movie, isn't a movie. And you don't hear that. And I said, Bill, he said, no, no, you're, you're in the movie. I said, okay. And I was like, now just the brandy and what he just told me, my body got warm in the glow, not just of getting the job. But what he said to me is so rare in any world, in any discipline, when somebody says it's you or nobody, his producer is a big deal. That's what the two months were. They, they had to convince Warner Brothers that this is what Bill wanted. Anyway, that's how I got the job. How do you approach a character like Mac? How much is on the page versus what you bring to it? The way I look at things is I read scripts or plays screenplays for movies, whatever. I'm reading, first of all, as soon as I get a script, 
like when I got the script two months earlier, I'm already preparing to play the part. What I learned early on for me was to look at auditions or meetings as if I already had the job and that if they want to fire me, they can fire me. But in my head, once I get the script, that's the beginning of me preparing for the part. So in this case, it was immediately recognizable to me who this person was. It's a person, as I looked at it, who is lost and has, doesn't have his voice, hasn't found who he is, which is one of the great kinds of stories you can have. And it is a thing that audiences, myself included, identify with because that's who we are. The dialogue was simple. It was clear that Scotland itself, which I'd never been to, and the Highlands, which I'd never been to, and this location was a magical place. So I was going to be involved in a story that was a kind of paradise in which this character learns that what he thinks he knows, he doesn't. And that's a big deal. It's not like I knew how I was going to play the part. I just said for me, oh, I know who this is. It's me. I don't have to look. I don't have to do anything. It's me. And as an actor, my training and my experience is literally, it's the script, but it's who I'm playing opposite. And if I'm a good listener and I, all I have to do is listen to the actors opposite me, that's the magic of casting or what they call chemistry, which of course you can't cast. You know, it's, it's not possible. It's an accident. And I try to do that with every job. My assumption is if they've hired me, they think I'm the guy, I'm the guy. And that's, that's basically my approach. It seems simple, but I try and, I mean, I, I did a four plays of Harold Pinter's and I had to learn East End Jewish, an East End Jewish accent. That took a month. It takes at least a month to learn an accent. In the, in the era we're living in now, there's hardly any time. And whoever your favorite actors are, doesn't matter whether, you know, it's Clooney or Roberts or De Niro, you know, or the younger generations, what they demand and ask for is time. They want time to prepare. They want time to work on their, I don't mean preparing the character. I mean, acting is not remembering lines. It's what am I wearing? How's my hair going to look? Who's playing up? You know, all of those things. Is there a rehearsal? Am I going to have time for rehearsal? So I felt pretty confident because my training was in improvisation. And I knew how to recognize the value of props very early on. Because in the improv company, we had no sets, props, or costumes. We would just stand on stage and create a world. So I knew also my heroes were Chaplin and Keaton, and I learned from them how they created the gags they did and told the jokes and stories that they did around props. So I, my head was already working, but I didn't know what it was going to be because you can read that he picks up a rock, but I don't know what the rock is. So the, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's generally how I go about it. And everybody's different. So Were there a lot of rehearsals for Local Hero? We did a reading. They flew me out to London in April, something like that. And we did a reading with all the actors who were going to be in the movie, except for Lancaster. He wasn't there. 
Bill said to me after the reading, because the actor Peter Capaldi, who was going to play Danny, my Scottish connection, um, I mean, oil connection, not drug connection, had never acted before. Bill said, yeah, he was a, I think he was a stand-up comedian. He was a caricaturist. I mean, he did so many, like, you know, all, all young actors. He did lots of stuff. Maybe he'd acted in a play. I don't know. But he was, you couldn't be more raw than uh, Peter. So Bill said to me after the reading, you know, everybody we said goodbye. Can't wait to see you in Scotland. This is really great. And there were producers there. And I mean, there was a lot of people there. So Bill takes me aside and he said, did you like Peter? I said, oh, he's fantastic. Oh, my God, he's fantastic. He said, do you think I need, he's raw. He's, he's not, he's new to this kind of, I said, don't touch him. You hired him for a reason. Follow your instincts. All that weirdness, that's Peter. If you, if you try and give him direction, don't do it. I mean, he'll be fine. And he was brilliant, as they all were. It was a, one of the greatest casts I ever worked with. Obviously, including Lancaster, but it was so well cast. I mean, it was like Animal. It was just perfect. Every single character, every, the background, everybody. And again, I they put me up in, in Fort William is the town where a lot of the crew stayed and the production office was. And it was about an hour drive to the beach, Mora Beach. And in between, because they needed to get the actors as close to the location as possible, hour and a half for actors, that's, that's a, you're, you're losing shooting time. So they put me up at an old converted roadhouse, about 40 minutes from the beach. But everybody from the screenplay, I mean, from the movie was in that hotel. So I was seeing everybody, like, it's like the village was in that hotel. So I, I, it was like, you know, Mac meeting the village. And every day was hysterical. I couldn't believe my good fortune because most of what I do in the movie is look. You know, I'm reacting to other people. I'm reacting to the environment. And I, if I've learned anything, it's how to listen. That's whatever I know about acting, it's listening. But the great thing is, if the camera's on me listening... It's got to turn around and it's got to be interesting who I'm looking at. And they were all amazing. So the less I did, the more, I mean, I, you know, if I just turned my head, the audience, they got it. And I just, it was the most challenging because doing nothing is a very hard thing to do because it's tempting in all, pick a discipline. It's very tempting to do something. And the script was everything. The script was everything. I had very good, you know, tutors and, you know, working for Mammoth, the improv company. When I eventually worked with Harold Pinter, everybody that I worked with reinforced what I was learning because I didn't go to drama school. I was in an apprentice situation. So I was learning from everybody that I was around and they're the best teachers. So. When and where did you shoot the Houston stuff? Was that all at the beginning, all at the end? Was it actually in Houston? Where was that? We shot in Houston. Those were the first two days of shooting, I think. It was me on the on the road. That's that's the you know, the highway that circles Houston. That was me. I mean, that is in Houston. We shot some of my office scenes in Houston, or all my office scenes in Houston. 
The only thing Lancaster shot was um, when he when he's coming out of the building when he's seen the psychologist crawling outside his window. Calls his secretary and says, "Call the police." There's a prowler. Shoot him off. Shoot to kill. At great line. Shoot him off. Shoot to kill. Uh, anyway, the only thing he did was walk out of the building. Everything else was going to be in in uh, Scotland. So I was introduced to him. I was on a scaffolding somewhere shooting something, and he was down below. And we waved, and I got to meet him downstairs. And all I kept thinking of is, this is unbelievable. This guy looks and sounds exactly like Burt Lancaster. <laughs> and I know that seems like, duh, but... When you meet somebody who has a voice that is so spectacularly known, you just, I was almost giddy with laughter. I didn't, but I, you know, I grew up watching Berlancaster since, you know, the 50s when I was a kid. That's what we shot in Houston and the rest we shot in in, uh, Scotland. The interesting thing was on the second day, we shot the end of the movie, the last scene. Yeah. We shot that scene that my apartment, it was in Houston because that's, you know, the movie ends with me overlooking my balcony at Houston. They had brought from Scotland, from that beach, rocks and shells. And they gave them to me. They said, you want to use any of this thing? And I told you before, I I know what a prop is. I found which shell do I want to use? Because I had an instinct. And I picked up a long shell. I don't know if you remember it, but it's kind of like this, a little thicker, and it's called a razor clamp or a spoot, they call them in Scotland. So I filled my pockets with rocks, and all I said to Bill was, about my face, I said, nothing, right? And he said, less than nothing, because I had to create a mask, because I hadn't had the experience yet. and. What an actor has is a mask. And there are times when you have to let the audience project onto your mask what they're experiencing. And that's, it's hard to do, but it's it's not impossible. It's doable. So I had the rocks. I took the rocks. Remember, this is the second day. I haven't, I haven't had this experience yet. So I've, and I knew which shell I was going to take. And I looked at the, at the razor clam and I just went like this. And I put it down and I, in my head, I knew there's a scene where I'm going to be washing shells in the bathroom when my sidekick, Danny, comes by. So I planted that prop, used those props and did little as I could. And, and it's weird to see something theoretical actually work because it only works if the story works. You know, in other words, if the story fails, the audience, they'll probably have left the theater, but they're not going to see anything on my face. But I did once I did a mammoth play on Broadway called The Old Neighborhood. That was uh, 1997, I think, with uh, Patti LuPone. We did it at the Booth Theater. It was really amazing. Before our first performance, Mammoth said to us, the audience has a job to do. Let them. I'd already inculcated that into my experience. Because that's how I, I didn't realize I had an intuition to do that. But I knew I was mad for Chaplin and Keaton. And I knew Buster Keaton. I've been watching his movies since I was young. 
And you know, as a movie fan, he never moves his face. I mean, Chaplin is like a, you know, he's practically un, out of control with his face, but also has command about doing nothing. So that's where I kind of got it from, you know, because I didn't, nobody taught me that. I didn't do mask work or anything like that, which they do teach in, in good drama school. So, and that's why. This is your first time over in Scotland. This is your, I wouldn't necessarily call Americathon your first leading role, even though I think you do have the lead, but it's really so much more of a ensemble piece. So you're leading this film. This has got to be a little bit of a kind of a scary experience for you to be in a new place with this much pressure on you. Yeah, could have been, but I had played leads in plays. So all I knew was what's different about a movie. Of course, I learned it immediately at Animal House, but I was studying filmmaking. I was reading about directors and I went to the movies since I'm five, you know, in New York City where you can see movies from every world, every country in the world. So I was already thinking about, talking about, discussing. And it's the challenge. Again, everybody's different. But the challenge of being the lead is just you work more. (laughs) I didn't feel any pressure. I mean, to me, I, you know, I I never felt like, you know, don't screw this up. I never felt they're going to fire you. Although, when I got to when I got to Scotland after we finished in Houston, David Putnam screened what we shot in Houston for Warner Brothers and different executives. And there's really not a lot that I did, including the ending, in which I didn't do anything. And I could feel, I could feel it. I could feel that, you know, I'm sure that there were executives sitting there going, man, this guy's not doing any acting at all. Which, of course, from my point of view is, oh, thank you very much. And David explained to them, but out of my earshot, and they said, don't just calm down. He's, everything he's doing is perfect. And, you know, But that's as close to realizing that there are powers that be who, you know, they want to see the movie immediately. Now, I'm not going to compare myself to... Al Pacino and The Godfather, but that story is legendary. You know, Paramount was flipping out with Pacino, who they didn't want in the first place. And it wasn't until they shot the scene where Pacino gets the gun in the bathroom and kills the cop and the and Salazzo that they finally went, oh, but that's how, you know, that you need a Coppola, you need a Bill for Scythe, and you need Bill to be supported by somebody like uh, David Putnam. All I knew was it was a great screenplay. I thought I, my contribution would be a good, but like we said about Animal House, what do I know? You know, you kind of go in on a wing and a prayer and, and hope for the best. So. so once you get there, what is that relationship like with Dennis Lawson and Peter Capaldi? Because you're on screen with those two so much. Like I said, we were all living in this uh, old roadhouse and we would have dinner every night, and drinks and, all we did was laugh and tell stories. I mean, it was an immediate connection with all the actors, not just Dennis and and Peter, absolutely everybody. But I fell in love with both of those guys. I mean, I fell in love with everybody. The only thing I regret is that they live so far away. Occasionally, a message will come across, you know, 
the same thing with animals. I stayed in touch with, you know, a good 10 people, but they live here. That's the difference. That's the difference. The, the simpatico in that experience was, I would wish it for everybody. I don't mean as an actor, but I mean in, in your life, in which you get to be with a group of people, and all you want to do is your work with them. And I've certainly heard it explained to me by athletes, by other artists, by doctors, you know, you're in that special zone where you're not even, I know I experienced it in my improvisational company and the other plays that I've done. The thing about what actors do is it's very intense for a short period of time. I mean, eight months doing the same play, to me, I love that. But eight months is really not an eternity. Two, three months in a movie is not a long time. That's about the average length of doing a film. You bond in a particular way because in order to do what I do or what actors do is you can't do it unless you become intimate. I don't mean physically. I mean, uh, unless you, you know, basically you're cracking open your chest and going here, have a look. And uh, everybody that I meet, I even the jobs that didn't work out well, or even the jobs that were compromised and difficult, I can maybe count on one hand people I would have a hard time saying hello to, but I can't, I even can't, even when things, you know, things can get rough sometimes. I don't mean competitively, it's just everybody's, remember, fear is a big part of our world. I mean, again, it doesn't matter if it's show business or stress is a big part of life. And how you deal with it is, is that's the real challenge to me in theater or in movies. I mean, theater, you're projecting emotion. In theater, you have to let the camera, you have to let the camera seduce you. In the theater, you have to seduce the audience, but it's the opposite. Sounds a little technical, but that's what makes it so exciting. You know? and, when, and when your fellow players are, are giving you what I hope I'm giving, was unforgettable. A friend of mine told me that uh, the actor Michael O'Keefe and I were at an event a couple of nights ago, and he reminded me he was at the first preview of the Mammoth play, The Old Neighborhood, and I was doing a scene with Patti LuPone. It was the second act, and I forgot. I didn't know where I was. We must have said two or three lines together. This is the first preview, first audience, right? 800 people, the Booth Theater. And I looked at Patty and I just looked at her and looked at her and, and she could see that I had no clue. And she said, want to start over? And I said, sounds like a good idea. And the audience practically gave us a standing ovation because they were so excited because we were so calm. What Michael said is, it wasn't that you went up. It's that the two of you kind of were like having drinks. And one of you said, want to start over? That's that's what it's like to be in the trenches with people who know what they're doing. It's really fascinating. What were some of your favorite memories of making Local Hero? I knew when I got that script, when I got it in January of 1982, I remember thinking, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but just don't forget anything that's going to happen. This is going to be one of the most amazing experiences in your life if you get it. And if you don't get it, it's still going to be pretty amazing. And I was right. So I would say everything stands out because every day was like living in the movie. 
And all I had to do, the hard part was, you know, just having the experience of that day. Every scene. I mean, for an actor, yes, it, it is dialogue, but I was allowed to do nothing, like I said, walking along the beach, you know, with holding my shoes, watching uh, Dennis uh, dancing with his wife, Jennifer, Jennifer Black, who played his wife. Just a little scene where I'm, I poke my head around the corner. I could recognize that he's, Bill is going to tell the story. And the question is the same question in Animal House. How well, how good is the editing going to be? As an example, uh, I was with Bill in Los Angeles at the Wilshire, Wilshire Hotel, Beverly Wilshire. And we were going to be meeting one of the producers from Warner Brothers. He had now seen the film and he was going to talk to Bill and I just happened to be there. So he said to Bill, movie's just beautiful, but the ending seems a little sad. Now, Bill was known for being funny, Bill Forsyth. So when he heard that the director, uh, that the producer thought it was sad, his response was, that's so great. I'm so glad you liked it. And he said, no, 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 we really like it. But the ending is is sad. And he said, nah, isn't that great? I wasn't sure that was going to come across. And he just, I wouldn't say twisted him around, but he could hear the producer of Warner Brothers one of the VPs telling him they want a happy ending and say that as I learned later, Putnam said to Bill, listen, we have a problem. They want to fly Peter back to Scotland and, and have a reunion with everybody from the town. And Bill said, no way. That's not the, what I wrote. The whole point of the movie is he can't go back. He has to change in order to go back. And that's another movie. And I haven't written that yet. And he never has. But what he was saying to David Putnam was, it's not possible. I'm not going to give this movie a happy ending. You know, the bittersweet aspect of the ending is that I want to stay. But Burt Lancaster, my boss, has said, go home. I'm going to stay here and play in the water and be with old Ben. Right? So David Putnam said, well, we got we to gotta do something. We got to give him something. They want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Bill said, for what? I'm not going to do that. So Bill thought about it, thought about it. And he remembered they had, and he's working with the editor. The editor was incredible. I'm forgetting his name right now. Anyway, they're watching the film and they pull out a shot they had of the village with the town in the background, the, te- the red telephone in the midground, and the telephone, as you know, is a big part of that story. And then in the foreground is, is the ocean. So you see the whole village. They decided to put the ringing of the telephone. That's where that came from. They saw that. That's what they did. They added that shot. Because originally it was supposed to be me hearing Houston, overlooking Houston, except I'm thinking about, you know, the Isle of Skye and those beautiful horizons in in Scotland and the Highlands. And they said, okay, that will take that. Now, it is one of the most spectacular endings to a movie. Once you think about Mark Knopfler's music called Going Home, right? So everything is playing in counterpoint because the theme of the 
movie is going on. So that place is home, not just for them, for the audience. And I'm the audience. I mean, that's my function. I'm literally reacting because it's that's one of those things when the audience identifies with the character. So when Bill and I were doing publicity, every single event we were at was usually after a screening. They people would say, "Is that Mac calling back?" And Bill would say, "Who I you know I, I hope I've given the impression is quite a trickster." He would say, "Um." You know, I think there's something wrong with the phone. And the and the audience would laugh like you laugh. And they'd say, No, no, really, really, is that is that Mac? And he'd say, No, I, I'm telling you what I think. I mean, you do notice nobody answers the phone. That's the funny part of Bill. He gave them the happy ending. But the funny thing is, Mac leaves and nobody fucking cares. It is a beautifully poignant moment. Because we'd all like to believe when we leave, everybody's going to go, oh, my God. And, you know, some remember you, some don't, most don't. But that's and and obviously the truth of the of the matter is if the audience believes it's Mac, then it's Mac. The matter. That was what Mamet was saying to us back when we were doing the play. Let the audience do their job. And there's a great Harold Pinter quote about life in general, but certainly creativity, creatively. And that is, do your best, expect nothing, and move on. And that's as spare a way of looking at anything you do in life. Give it your all, you know, pour your heart out, don't expect anything in return, and move on to whatever's next. And I think that's kind of part of that experience. I didn't, I wasn't thinking that way. But when I saw the movie originally, I thought, wow, this is as special as I thought it was. And the nice thing is, for the people who like it, they really like it. It's very moving to know something I did 40 years ago is still uh, so affectionately thought. Of. How did they do the effects with the sky? You couldn't film an Aurora Borealis, or either you couldn't film it or you can't schedule one, right? So the guy who did the special effects, again, I'm losing, forgetting his name, but he was at the top of his game. And how he did it, I don't know. But I've seen the Aurora Borealis twice up in Vermont. It's pretty spectacular. It's pretty amazing. It's very eerie because you think something's wrong. You know, you're looking at the sky turning. Like I reacted in the, in the movie. You just cannot believe what you're seeing, that that nature is throwing you this light show and you just got to you, ha- you have to be there. You know, I love your reaction to that. <laughs> well, again, it was, you know, that's what they wrote years later. You know, I say I'm talking to Lancaster and I think one of my lines is I think it's um, Ian Stewart who plays the guy who takes care of the phone. Or maybe it's Dennis Lawson. I'm forgetting. But one of them explains to me, it was probably Dennis, one of them explains to me that it's called an Aurora Borealis. So I say, I've got some new information. It's it's called the Aurora, Aurora Borealis. And Lancaster says, oh, I haven't seen one of those since whatever. And years later, because usually I have a pretty good ear for immediate instinct to hear puns and jokes. And I thought, oh, what an opportunity. 
I could have said, I've got some new information, sir. It's a roaring, boring Alice. But the movie was shot, so you couldn't do it. Maybe I'll get a chance to do it somewhere else. Did the movie open any doors for you? Because it was just so spectacular. Yeah, you know, it didn't make an enormous amount of money. And the only way, it's great to be in something so well received by the critics. And the audience, it was there, but it wasn't Animal House. I mean, it wasn't even as much money as Crossing Delancey made. So the only real, real way you you can be nudged forward is if the movie or the play or the TV show makes a splash. And it did critically. I mean, I got unbelievable compliments from the business, but not an imaginative business. They have to see you. I did a movie with a French director named Diane Curie's. She's French director. And the movie was A Man in Love, an homme starring uh, Peter Capaldi and Greta Scacchi and Claudia Cardinale. And it was an amazing experience. I shot it in Rome for 13 weeks. When I was working with Diane, who had done a movie called Molotov Cocktail, and she's made, you know, half a dozen movies. I'm forgetting all of them right now. But she said to me once, and this was really eye-opening, not because of what she said, but it made me think about what you were just asking. She said, uh, how come you're not a bigger star? And I said, well, it's not because I chose not to be. She said, I'm just curious. I said, well, why do you ask? I said to her, and she said, if you were a European actor and done local hero, you'd never stop working. Because in France, in Italy, in Germany, in Sweden, in Japan, because they're smaller cultures and you are embraced by the country, they want to see you. You become their honorary their honorary ambassador in the movies, like Jean-Pierre Leo and 400 Blows, you know, Truffaut's film. And that was very interesting because our culture is so big. It's so big. Bet used to have a great expression, out of sight, dead. And uh, that's how hard it is. I mean, the fact that I'm still doing this 51 years later, is that's more amazing than the, the other question. Because, you know, stardom is a job. You have to cultivate it. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Maybe I didn't understand that part of it, you know, but I certainly, you know, once Animals, Animal House came out, it took me about two months to come down because I was a theater kid from New York, not a kid, you know, young man. And the only time people stop you is just by accident. Either they're waiting outside the theater or they bump into you at a museum or delicatessen or restaurant, but it's not a lot of people. Well, Animal House, I I was being stopped every day, all day long. That's a different animal. So it took me about two months to realize it didn't mean anything. Like in my improv company, War Babies, we were performing in California when when Animal House came out. And I was so self-conscious that the audience was looking at me. Well, they were, but I had confused you know, now I had a national face. So I said to the group, I got to take a couple of months off. And they said, what's wrong? Are you okay? I said, yeah, I, I'm just a little paranoid. They said, what are you talking about? They said, well, I feel like the audience is looking at me and staring at me. And these were my closest 
acting friends. And they all looked at me and said, are you nuts? Of course they're looking at you. You were on stage. And I said, no, no, I feel like the fourth wall has been broken because it's too intimate. I have to unlearn that this actually means anything. So, you know, after maybe six weeks, four weeks, and then I, I was fine. But it was an uncanny experience to have so much recognition. But there's always a new generation, you know. I'm working on a show now called Shelter, and it's written by Harlan Coben, who writes crime fiction, and it's for Amazon. And everybody's young. They're all kids. I mean, it is, you know, except for, you know, Adrian Barbeau plays my wife, and there's a couple other adults, but it's mostly a story. It's like I had children's crusade. It's really fantastic. But, you know, I know they're looking at me like, who's this geezer? <laughs> but it's that's as it should be. That's the way it goes. So that question by by Deanne was really interesting. She wasn't insulting me. She was, you know, she just was trying to say, boy, if you were a French actor, you'd never stop. Because that's how it works in Europe. And I after Local Hero, I did another 11 movies around the world. And the thing that was different about America and in foreign countries was once they'd seen my work, they assumed I could act. Whereas in America, I had to prove I could act. So in Europe, the question would be, or Argentina or Japan, wherever the hell I was, Tunisia, their question was, I wonder what Peter would do with this part. In America is, I wonder if Peter can do this part. And that's the difference. And that's what Deanne was getting at. You can do it or you can't do it. And it's very weird. You know, I mean, no actor likes to audition. But, you know, I've got a, like an eight-minute reel that's 50 years of work in dense eight minutes. And everything's in there. Dramatic parts, comedy parts, crying parts. I mean, everything's in there. But in a beautifully constructed way. It's a great reel. What you got to do is look at it. Now, if you want to talk to me for an hour to see if I'm not crazy, I get it. But the acting part, either I can do it or not do it. Ewan McGregor, who's Dennis Lawson's nephew, was directing American Pastoral, which was based on Philip Roth's novel. So he was very interested in me in playing his father. Ewan was going to play the lead, Swede. And he knew me. He grew up with me. And he invited me to lunch. And he said, you know, in that beautiful voice of his, I just want you to know, you know, I have to do due diligence in terms of making sure you're not frothing at the mouth. I said, no, no I get it. You and this is your first, you know, it's your first movie that you're directing. You're the lead and the director. And I hope you hire me. But it's really a thrill to meet you. And because uh, he was telling me how old he was when when uh, local hero came out he was probably 10 or 11 or something like that so it, you know everything comes around but he's british he didn't need to see me audition what was i going to do so that's you know that's basically you know if it could have been another way it would have been another way there are certainly people who believe that they are stars or believe they will be stars but it's not a guarantee you know it's not a guarantee but there, you know, it takes, I mean, I don't even know what it takes, but it certainly takes somewhere along the way, you realize you're going to sacrifice everything. You know, you're all you're going to do. You're going to hire publicists. You know, that part of it, 
I always, I was naive. I thought if you do well, you'll be hired. <laughs> Not the case. But like I said, I'm still working and, you know. You did one thing that I just wanted to give you a compliment on. Your narration of Michael Shaban's Yiddish Policeman's Union. So good. Oh, thank you. That's great. I still think about that book and your interpretation of it today. You did such a great job with it. Thank you. I, well, I love the book. You do a book if you're the, uh, you know, doing the narration. It's about eight hours a day for five days. It's intense. Anyway, the leading character's name is Lanzmann. And before I did, you know, the recorded narration, I had, you know, a couple, maybe a page of questions about the pronunciation of things and want to make sure I got that right. And I said to the producer, and just double check, uh, the character's name is is pronounced Lanzmann. And he said, no, no, Lanzmann. And I said, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's Lanzmann. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm, absolutely, it's Lanzmann. And I said, this is a book about Jews. Do you know what Lanzmann means? He said, no, what? He said, fellow Jew. When Jews would travel, even if they couldn't speak Yiddish, this goes way back. They would say, Lanzmann, meaning maybe you can get a meal. Maybe you can get, you know, that's how. So on the third day, they were going to interview Michael Shaban for the, for the tape, I guess, for the, for, the, for the audio. And the producer, thank God, said, and it's pronounced Lanzmann, right? And Michael said, no, no, it's pronounced Lanzmann. So the next day, I had to spend an hour saying, Lanzmann said, said Lanzmann. Lanzmann asked. So, and of course, when they put it together, you could never tell. But thank goodness I, I understood it. I mean, it's an amazingly, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. And I had so much fun doing it. You know, he's got a great sense of humor. And it was right in my wheelhouse, you know. I think I must have done 20 characters. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's me. But I think, I think, um, who's the actor? Jim Dale. I think Jim Dale na- does all the narrations for the the books about the young kid with the scar on his head. Uh, Potter. Harry, Harry Potter. Potter. Yeah. 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 I think he did all the characters. Jim. Now, there's a guy who knows how to do voices. I've never listened to those, but I've had family members say, yeah. oh, yeah, we listen to those on vacations and yeah, just yeah, how yeah. great the narration. He yeah, and, yeah. I think Stephen Fry gets a lot of compliments from people when they hear him do voices. Yes, as well. I'm sure he's got a fantastic voice. I've only done about four or five narrations. It's very challenging, but very fulfilling. Another one that I did that I liked was a collection of short stories by Raymond Carver. Yeah, you'd like that one. It's 11 short stories. And he's, a, he's great to read. And I think the McDonald crime murder mysteries, two of his. But I, you know, I, I don't get them that often. But when I do, they're, they're really fun. Thank you for the compliment. I was very proud of that one. Mr. Rieger, thank you so much. I'm so happy that we were able to connect. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm flattered that you asked. I should let your audience know that I have a podcast actually called Peter Riegert's Vocal Heroes, which is obviously a play on local hero. I did one season and it's me talking to some really interesting people. You know, Karen Allen is on it and Liz Holtzman, the former congresswoman from New York. 
uh, Ruben Blades is in, on it. It's seven interviews, six interviews. And I'm trying to put together a second season, but COVID got away. And, you know, anyway, I'm very flattered that you asked me. And uh, this is fun. It's, it was an amazing experience. And obviously, um, what's that Groucho line? I talk so much, I must have been vaccinated by a phonograph needle. We are back and we are talking about local hero. And Rob, you mentioned you want to talk a little bit about corporate movies. I know that one that I had suggested that we take a look at, and I don't know if you guys had a chance or not, but uh, I was reminded a lot of the Coca-Cola Kid, Dushan Makaveev's film, The Coca-Cola Kid, which I did rewatch for this. And I have to say, I remembered liking The Coca-Cola Kid a lot more the first time I saw it than this time when I saw it. But I now know why I thought that these two movies are similar. This whole idea of this kind of fish out of water coming from this big corporate culture into a smaller place. In this case, it's Eric Roberts coming from Atlanta, you know, rather than Houston coming from Atlanta, coming from the Coca-Cola company. After he realizes that there's one small area in Australia that is not drinking Coca-Cola and he's there to, he's basically a missionary coming to, beat the natives into submission until they drink Coca-Cola and finding this man who has his own cola that he's trying to sell and does a great job with that. But I could see where I was seeing these two things, but I would have to say that local hero is definitely the winner if we were to put these two movies up for a fight. But yeah, there, there are a lot of these corporate movies and, The other one that I thought about, Rob, when you said corporate films was The Efficiency Expert with Anthony Hopkins from, I think, 91. And I even posted a little link in the the chat inside of the, the outline because the cover, the video cover of that is him standing in water with his pants rolled up. <laughs> and I'm just like, wow, what inspired you to have that cover? Because that's pretty much the poster image for Local Hero, but repurposed with Anthony Hopkins in that. Yeah, I mean, to me, I was just thinking sort of in general that as we get into the 80s, further into the 80s and then into the 90s, obviously, we have more film that is set within corporate people, especially people being dropped into communities and doing something within the community. And it becomes this, as you were saying, almost like if we were going to set it back in. I don't know, like as a Western, it would have been a missionary. It would have been like, I got to send the missionary in to deal with the native Indians. You know, we have to convert them or something. We got to do something over here. And it just seemed like there was a series of them in the 80s that just just became like a cliche. This became a go-to. And I think that we got so kind of enmeshed into corporate culture and understanding how corporations work, at least in American context, money and finance and all of those things. Because I was thinking of like things like other people's money later, like in a certain way, if, if this would have been a series of different events that the Rieger character had, maybe something like Up in the Air, where you have Clooney's character going to these places and firing people and taking over. Um, we were definitely kind of, think, working through some some issues of dealing with um, capitalism 
I was going to joke up the top that, you know, we could really do a nice kind of socialist reading on local hero and questions of capitalism and small market, you know, small communities and what is the impact on small communities? Because really, this community is kind of leveraged between two big things. They're leveraged between the military, who's doing these exercises with the flyovers, and then there's the industry. So it's like military and industry have kind of come in and taken over this beautiful, idyllic little place and made life difficult for these people. Or maybe they're going to make life okay for them. And the question of kind of, you know, how much money is enough money or is there enough money to, you know, buy off your values to go somewhere else? Or would you rather have a Maserati or a a Rolls Royce? Is that considered a valuable thing to discuss? So I thought that was interesting. I did watch the Coca-Cola Kids, uh, and yeah, I really struggled with the Coca-Cola Kid. I really wanted to like it, and I can, and it looks. It's hard to believe it's not influenced by Local Hero because so much of it is so similar. But it's it just shows how difficult you kind of appreciate, don't you, even more how how skilled the people behind Local Hero were because it is so similar that, and I think, oh, that scene should work, and that scene should probably work for some reason. Almost every single scene just falls flat and just doesn't work. And I don't know. I don't know what is what's wrong with that film. I can't. I couldn't quite put my finger on why it falls flat constantly. I don't think it's Eric Roberts, but maybe it's the script or maybe it's the direction. But not a great film. But I get it's. It was interesting to watch and see that, and also just to think how Australia, and also just seeing there about efficiency, um, efficiency expert, how Australia is seen as this backwater, and I think that's what Scotland was. You know, of course, it was Bill Forsyth who, who made it. Had it been an American director, maybe it would have been even a more condescending look at Scotland. But I think that's, I suppose, what he's jokingly trying to say is, you know, Scotland is a bit of a backwater and it's so far away from America, even though it's far closer than Australia is, of course. But yeah, Australia does get picked on, doesn't it, as a sort of, yeah, end of the earth. Uh, Crocodile Dundee does it as well, doesn't it, with Mick Dundee is just this this backwards yeah, guy he's a, but then of course, he's a hick but hey he's he's got the bigger knife so he, he wins but no i it's fascinating to see those two films definitely coca-cola kid and a local hero but just a million miles apart when it comes to quality well eric Roberts, his character doesn't really feel that defined because it's like he should just be he should be like the lemonade joe from the you know from the, the film of the same name where he's so into this drink that he drinks and he's basically the spokesman for the drink that he drinks because we get that at the beginning of the coca-cola kid we get that great shot i think they're playing like again like a corporate video but this time it's on film and you see the the image over his face and he's just like talking about why our dark and bubbly liquid is so loved by all those eskimos and other canadians we don't need to know we need only just to bring it to the people and I just love that he's so into Coca-Cola, but then when he gets over there, it feels like they don't know what to do with that character. And it feels like there are times where some of it has to do for me with his chasteness as far as like, is he the hero in the white hat that's coming in? Is he does, is he wearing a black hat or gray hat? Because it feels like there are times where people are trying to come on to him. Women are trying to come on to him. And he's just like, oh, no, no, no. Like he's some sort of like priest instead of a coca-cola salesman and i'm just like okay like mac mac wants to fuck you know he wants stella he wants to have what gordon has whereas i don't think there's anybody that coca-cola kid wants to be he just wants to sell stuff and i'm just like 
okay, you need a little bit more, which is a real shame because Makaveyev, I love Makaveyev's work, but his stuff more in Yugoslavia than post-Yugoslavia. And, you know, this was one of those movies where it's just like, okay, what what are you trying to do here, Dushan? I'm not exactly picking up everything. And I don't know if this is how much is, you know, him making this versus somebody saying, oh, we should get this guy for this because between this and Montenegro and Gorilla Bates at Noon, they're just kind of like weird, uneven films. Like Montenegro, I think, is closer to his earlier work, but nothing is very cutting edge. This feels very pedestrian and to the point where my wife was just like, why are we watching this? You know, (laughs) like she gave me one of those like, can we turn this off soon type of things? I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm watching it for the podcast. I have to finish this off. I remembered this being better. And then especially when I had Local Hero in my head, and I'm just like, man, Local Hero is so much better than this movie. It made it, it made Coca-Cola Kid even worse. Even just the mission is a bit unclear in the film. You're right about his character. What is he, a good guy or a bad guy? But I think I struggled to even work out what the mission was until quite late into it. And it's odd that you wouldn't just state that front and make it a bit clearer so that people go, oh, that's what he's trying to do. Unfortunate, unfortunate. You've got that moment in Local Hero where Mac and Danny are talking about oil. And can you imagine a world without oil? And, oh, well, we wouldn't have this, and we wouldn't have this, and we wouldn't have this. And almost everything that they mentioned is just so superfluous. Nothing is really needed. You know, there's nothing where it's just like, oh, my God, if we didn't have that. It's not like, you know, imagine a world without zinc, you know, and you could make phone calls. And you could (laughs) – that amazing video from – from educational film that Bart watches in class one day in The Simpsons, you know, a world without zinc. But a world without oil, it's just like, yeah, that kind of sounds like a better world to me, you know? Like, I only picture the Exxon Valdez. I only picture, you know, the huge pipeline disasters and these kind of things. And, yeah, coming in and trying to buy up all of this gorgeous land in order to just absolutely destroy it. And Mac at first is absolutely fine with that. That's the corporate objective. Which is what I love about all the discussion at the time in the film about we could set off a new ice age. Where like now we're like, oh, we're just going to burn ourselves to death with the climate change. (laughs) We're just cooking ourselves. The other thing that I was thinking about, because you brought up Brigadoon, and I just remembered a reference, another reference to Brigadoon in a film that is not connected in any way to this, was when Herschel Gordon Lewis talked about the 2000 Maniacs. He said that the 2000 Maniacs was his kind of ode to Brigadoon, the idea of this little village that appears and then you get stuck in the village and it disappears again for 100 years. That idea of a magical little village is, you know, a nice little little piece that shows up in various places yeah we could we could uh, of course go on for much longer i think and talk about kind of unofficial remakes or or spin-offs or sequels and i think for me uh, northern exposure is a, is of course a really good example of 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 a tv show that set in that villa that sort of town that's i mean magical i think there are potentially magical type things certainly mysterious things that happen in, in northern exposure the longer it goes on but they you know there are of course other shows and, and films that that have that small village and, and that magical side of things aren't there but local hero for me is much as i love northern exposure i think local hero still stands out as the best well you mentioned how film called whiskey galore had a little bit of an influence on this one and i did watch that that was also very delightful yeah, yeah, just it's just another one of those films that uh, we 
I mean, it's something I've touched upon in a couple of my, my books, or certainly the introduction to the books, mainly because I did Highlander, which is a, um, you know, it's a film set in Scotland. It's not a Scottish film as such. And, and Whiskey Galore is, is similar in that it, uh, we, our indigenous film industry is not, there's more happening now, but back in the day, local, um, Whiskey Galore was an Ealing Comedies, an Ealing Studios film. And so, yeah, there was a lot of English people coming up to Scotland and, and, and filming it, which is fine. And then there were Scottish actors in there as well, but probably not many Scottish crew. But that's just another film that we, we of course, embrace because it has it's Scottish. Let's just call it Scottish. And and it's definitely got the Cayley. I mean, the Cayley is in there. And I think also in uh, I Know Where I'm Going, another another Scotland set film. And, and I do mention, I did ask... Peter Rieger that explicitly and just said, you know, that there are Cayleys and other Scottish films. And he says, I know, I watched those films. I was in an Ealing comedy that this was my example. This was mine. I knew I was walking. And that, as I said at the beginning, you know, I think, I just think that's, that's a, an amazing thing. Cause so many times, Mike, I think you probably avoid asking this questions, but this question, but it's so easy to ask of people involved in, in classics. Did you know when you were making this film that 40 years from now, or then it would be a classic, and they always say no, 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 no. But I think Peter Rigert did know. It feels like he knew, or at least he sensed he was in something so special, and it just really comes across. He just, just I'll say once again, just that performance is 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 just such a great, such a great one. Yeah, I like too that you pointed out the whole thing of the uh, staircase going up was kind of a Powell and Pressburger influence there, and just yeah, put, calling out some of those other references that Forsyth was making. Yeah, very, very spot on with all that. So, again, kudos to you and, and to all of the work that you did on this book because it is probably, I mean, I don't want to just pee in your pocket, as they say in Australia, but just like it, it's probably one of the best film books that I've read in the longest time just because of the way that you approach it, the way that you get into these details. It's not a slog to read. It's a pleasure to read. You take us by the hand and just drag it, you know, Take us through this whole story and such an important film. And I mean, just the way that, yeah, you're talking, like, we haven't even talked about how this was such an important film to the Scottish film industry, which, you know, was kind of there, kind of not there. And then really, Forsyth really, you know, made such an impact with the movies that he was making at this time. This is it. We could, you could do a Bill Forsyth special, really, and uh, go into a lot more detail about all, all of this stuff. But, but yeah, absolutely. It was. I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but uh, there were not that many kind of freelance film and TV production people in Scotland at the time. Or certainly there were, there were a good number of them, but when Belfast South started making his films, that number grew. So, And a lot of that, yeah, of course, because they were making these films in Glasgow, that sinking feeling, a few more people, of course, had to then come on board as trainees or assistants. And then when they came to doing that to Gregory's Girl, people were then invited back. So those maybe those assistants were then moved up a level and then some more people came on board. So um, him making his three or four films in Scotland, certainly uh, in, the, in the early 80s, was a really important thing. And then things like even David Putnam, we've not, I don't think we've, we barely mentioned his, I don't know if we mentioned his name at all, who's a huge, it was his idea. Let's face it, the film was, was actually his idea. Uh, and Making Chariots of Fire, which was a massive success, of course, won an Oscar, at least one Oscar, maybe a couple. And um, and some of that was filmed in Scotland, so that brought more people on board. So these two guys, Bill Forsyth and David Putnam, just as a, they were kind of this powerhouse 
um, pairing and the idea of all those documentaries that, again, you mentioned at the start being made. I think that was, of course, a direct result of the fact that the STV, which is Scottish television, our kind of one of our main broadcasters in, in Scotland, of course, they saw that these two guys were coming together and this was such an important thing. And it was perhaps the most important producer in the UK at the time, certainly one of the top three in the world. He was still, he was huge. He'd been to America and, and run a studio over there. So yeah, there's a lot, there's there's so much that I, of course is in the book that we just don't have time to talk about. But so today, yeah, the Scottish film and TV industry is, is really much bigger. Thankfully it's been growing over the years. It has, fluctuations but there's so much happening now and as I, as i mentioned in the book i, I kind of i think uh, bill for fingerprints are kind of all over that even though he's not made a film here in uh, i think 1999 was the last time he made a film well just made a film actually which is a real a real shame i think pardon my ignorance but is is scotland on sort of the uh the, the, the tax trust or is it the lottery money that helps to to fund the industry over there? Because I know like in a lot of Commonwealth and UK that there's either a tax benefit from the government or sometimes it's lottery money that helps to make film. Yeah, there's lottery money. We also have Scott, uh, Screen Scotland, which uh, is part of Creative Scotland, which is our, yeah, our, it's, which is our government funded, public funded body. So Screen Scotland does a lot of work. Also, there are great tax breaks in Scotland and in the UK. So we get so many films here that are made. The new Indiana Jones film, some of that was filmed in Glasgow. Um, some of the Marvel films were filmed in Edinburgh. I passed a couple of them being filmed a couple of years ago. So we're a good country to come to to, to film just because it's a little bit cheaper as well, which is nice. And so I think some of there's there's, I think, a ticker tape parade scene in the new Indiana Jones film, I, I believe. And a lot of that was filmed in in Glasgow. And I think it's probably double. Usually it doubles for Philadelphia, which it did in World War Z. That was Scotland as well. So we should do a podcast just about <laughs> filmmaking in Scotland. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But Bill Forsyth, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot more to talk about. And of course, his American films, which we won't go into, but Breaking, Breaking In, I think, isn't it, with Bill Burt Reynolds and Housekeeping and then Being Human which is very, very, very interesting film. That's a, that could be a projection booth film. It's I'm not saying it's great, but it's interesting. <laughs> Overall, for you doing the book, how long did it come together? And you know, were there any things you know? As as anyone who's written a book, I know you know Mike knows anything you wish you could have gotten in there, or you were trying hard to get, or someone who you know you couldn't get. Yeah, I think it from uh, this was probably the quickest book I've done, partly because my publisher gave me a deadline which was <laughs> shorter than before and i think i started it in probably 2020 i think we signed i signed the contract in late 2020 and then yeah so 2021 really was doing a lot of interviews and starting to do the research but of course with the pandemic a lot of the things i wanted to do research wise i couldn't do because libraries were closed and, and things like that and but the, the benefit which was the same with Highlander, Highlander book. The good thing about the pandemic, if you can say that, is that people were at home still um, and the actors and, and the, the cast and crew. So generally I got most people I wanted. Couldn't get Peter Capaldi, sadly. He, I mean, just, yeah, his his people. I know, Mike, have, you've talked about this in the past and on here and maybe on Facebook as well, but just about trying to get 
get past agents and managers and I just couldn't get past them. They kept saying, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll oh yeah, we'll ask Pete, Peter. And then six months, three months would go by and they say, oh, sorry, we haven't done it yet. So I don't know. I'd like to think Peter Capaldi would have liked to speak to me. I'm, I'm guessing he just was never asked, which is sad because he's such a, I have met him in the past um, just briefly and he's a lo- he was a lovely guy. And for everything I've heard, he's one of the nicest actors. I read something just the other day Apparently he was on a on a flight. I don't know where it was going, but he landed, let's say, in New to New York, and he he wrote a letter, uh, a note to the to the to the captain, I think, as a thank you note and a little picture because he was a he, he did a lot of art in his early days, and he wrote a little picture of a plane, just little things like that, you know, just little a nice guy basically. So so he's the main one I think that I would have liked to have spoken to, but it didn't happen. And, um, but no, I think the people I did speak to, I mean, I keep, I've mentioned Rigert so many times now, but I, two and a half hours, I was speaking to him for, and I think it shows, I think he probably added about 10,000 words to the book <laughs> because there's, there's so much in there. He just likes to talk, but the things he says are fascinating. So, um, as you've heard, of course, if you've been listening to the interview that just was on, on this podcast and, and Dennis Lawson as well was a lovely guy really nice to talk to and actually he he sent me a correction to the book which uh, I was just looking at on my phone and I was trying to find it while we were speaking I say in the book just from my from listening to that scene so this is an exclusive if nobody's noticed it before but in the scene where where Gordon is jumping about on the chair in his office I thought he said I know you the way he says it, I thought he said oh Mr oh Mr McIntyre I know you I, I know you. I thought that's what he was saying. But he emailed me and he said, just to let you know, I'm saying I adore you. Oh, wow. So I don't know if that's in the subtitles. I didn't. It I is. I know you in the subtitles. It's not there I you adore go. you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I probably got it from the subtitles. But he said, maybe if I'm doing another edition, I could maybe change it to I adore you. And also just another little exclusive, which will be in the paperback. He mentions his, his wife, that he met his future wife or she saw him that's a funny story in the book about how when he was filming local hero there was this kind of younger younger woman younger girl really watching the filming from afar and maybe 20 years later he met her and he ended up marrying her he said her name was karen uh can i mention that in the book <laughs> so I'd, so that was just a little thing a little extra there but but yeah so no, I, I really enjoyed writing it as well, and just and I, yeah, and so many things that I noticed that I of course tried to put into the book about seeing Ben in the background and and that which I, I touched on briefly about the halfway point of the film where uh, things change and Mike you then talked about it how after that point where they're on the beach and I think they say that's the meteor, you know if you want you may be opening up new angles to this negotiation if you want to buy the meteor sort of thing and it's after that that matt takes his tie off and he he sees ricky on the on the bike and he stops danny going on to the yeah i really enjoyed it and i'm really quite proud of it and i'm I'm very happy that you enjoyed it as well mike thank you for that have you ever seen local hero the musical i have actually yes i don't talk i talk a little bit about the background to it in the book i don't talk about my thoughts on it because i don't think people really Really want to know. I, I didn't think it was bad. I saw it, I think it was 2019, it premiered here in Edinburgh. Uh, and that's when I went to see it. And it made a big deal at the time about the fact that there was an amazing 
screen. They sort of did some very clever things with projection of the Aurora Borealis. And that was, that was a huge selling point. And then I bought my ticket and went to see it. And the seat that I was in, I couldn't see the screen. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's a lot of people in this this theater that can't see that. So that's a weird thing to, to, sell, it, to sell it on. So I have no idea if that was good or bad. And yeah, from what I remember at the time, it was that was before I planned to write the book. So otherwise, I would have taken more notes, I think. But uh, yeah, it's just not not as good. It's really not as good as, as the film. There are more. There well, there are there are no songs in the in the film that, of course, the characters sing. But in this, there are I think ten new songs, and a couple of them were quite good fun. But overall, yeah, the, mm, yeah, just for me, it was quite quite a flat experience and. And there, it's now reopened in Chichester, I think it is, a, a city in, in, down in England. And I did see a review and it wasn't that positive. Well, for sight, kind of disowned it, really. And I think that probably tainted my view of it slightly as well. I just think if, you, if the guy who created it doesn't like it, then there's probably something wrong. Such a weird thing this year, like in all years that I've been doing this show, Thinking back on the the 600th episode, there are so many musical versions of the films that we've talked about. You know, Carry the Musical. You know, uh, a few weeks ago we talked about Sunset Boulevard, and there's a, was an attempt. There's a whole documentary about the attempt to make a musical out of that. I didn't mention on the Nightmare Alley episode that there was a Nightmare Alley musical. There was one from My Man Godfrey. I mean, just just this year alone, there have been so many musical versions of the movies that we've talked about. So when I ran across that there was the musical version of Local Hero, I was just like, you got to be kidding me. A musical version of this, too? It's like, what's next? The Ninth Gate is going to have a musical <laughs> version? It's just like, okay, you yeah. know? I mean, knock yourself out. That That's great and all, but yeah, it's just so funny how which movies get turned into musical versions. I see it now. My Dinner with Andre, the musical. Local, with an exclamation mark. It was fine. It was fine. That's all I can say. And then there's another film, a film, Scottish film called Orphans, which I don't know if, if either of you know. Peter Mullen directed it, which I think is, is, a, is a fantastic film that was made maybe, I think it was, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago which is well worth seeing, but that was turned into a musical uh, in the last year or so, and I didn't get to see that. It just didn't really appeal to me. I heard, it's, I heard it was amazing and, and, and really good, but I just struggle, I think, sometimes thinking, yeah, why do I want to see that? I've seen the film. I enjoyed the film. <laughs> why? Why that one? But, yeah. Speaking of the musical, because I did look at the listing on it, at least there's a carryover with Knopfler doing the music, so there's that. No, that that's it. Him and Forsyth were both brought in at the start, and 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 Knopfler still seems to be quite very proud of it. He's there, I think, on the opening night, and is happy. And I couldn't get Knopfler sadly for the book. I did try. He was apparently busy writing, <laughs> busy writing music for his new album. Mike must get that. Anyone who does interviews gets these sort of responses, and you think, okay, that's a very polite way of just saying, get lost, isn't it? He's currently working on his memoir, but he, yeah, he, so he's very proud to be part of it, and and the songs were good. I mean, I'm I'm definitely not saying the songs were bad, but uh, it's just, yeah, I think it's just that thing, isn't it? If you're a fan like Orphans, please go and see Orphans if you've not, or or buy the the Blu-ray came out from Indicator in the UK recently, and it's it's a fantastic film. But yeah, I think if you're a fan of 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 something in one area, 
one medium, it's just hard, isn't it, to to think, oh, I'll go and see that other thing. And like, there's the Back to the Future musical, and I, I adore Back to the Future. It's one of my top, maybe my top film, or certainly changes, but in the top three or four. But I don't know, I just, I mean, I'll see it if it comes to my city, but I'm not going to go to London to, to see it. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Right at this moment, my life is just, there, there are things going on. I've got to move house in the next six, four, three or four months. So, I, so things are kind of paused. But something I did start a while ago was a book on people who work with Jim Henson. I think I maybe mentioned that last time we spoke, maybe about Highlander, I think. Did we last speak? Or maybe maybe it was when we did Chameleon Street. But um, yeah, so I, I've interviewed maybe 20 plus people who worked with Jim Henson. So, And it's just in different aspects. So the director of, of uh, The Storyteller, which was a, if you know that one, but it's a brilliant series with John Hurt, yeah. Um, and uh, one of the actors, oh, his name's gone out of my, my head, but he was in the Muppet movie. He's also in My Cousin Vinny. He plays the the guy that tries to get them off at the start and then doesn't, but... Austin Pendleton, that's the chap, sorry, yes. But yeah, he he just talks a lot about working with Charles Durning, which is fascinating. So yeah, I think that'll be an interesting book. And um, But uh, yeah, and, and there's a Scottish TV show called Hamish Macbeth, which was made in the mid-90s, which I'm a huge fan of. And I just started doing interviews before I'd ever written a book about 15 years ago. The theatre in Scotland and certainly in Edinburgh and Glasgow as well, but in Edinburgh there's a lot of brilliant theatre. And so when actors would come to the city who were in Hamish Macbeth, I would interview them, go and interview them. So uh, I've got this book, which has been bubbling away. And I think probably five people will buy it, but I love it. I just love it. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and do that. If not for next Christmas, then soon after. So yeah. So if anyone's listening, have not seen Hamish Macbeth, please check it out. So on Amazon prime in the UK, it might be in America, yeah, but Robert Carlyle, it was just before train spotting. I think about a year before train spotting hit. And it was just, on, he was on the cusp of becoming the Robert Carlyle. At this point, he was just Robert Carlyle. So brilliant, a brilliant show. Very quirky. If you like Local Hero, you will, I pretty much think you will like Hamish Macbeth as well. He's got that beautiful humor, that low key, slightly quirky, but not, people don't, aren't stupid in it. You know, they're not, very, the locals know more than they're letting on, I suppose, is, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, so that's me. Yes, that's what I'm working on. It's funny, I just called up Hamish Macbeth. It is available here, but through Acorn. I think you can watch it free with ads on Amazon Prime here. And the cover of Death of a Gossip, the book number one of the Hamish Macbeth Mysteries, it's a beach with a telephone box. And I'm just like, okay, this, this damn telephone boxes are going to be everywhere for a while for me. I'd, I'd recommend, without this turning into Hamish Beth podcast, I would recommend people just even watch the first episode because Jimmy Yule, who I interview in the book, who was in um, Local Hero, he plays Ian, the chap who's always at the phone box and asking if the, the line is long enough, the cord is long enough. He, he's in the first series of, of Hamish and uh, he's brilliant, him and his, his son in the series. So you'll get, there's a bit of continuity there with between the two. So please watch it. It's just very funny and yeah, nice bit of Scottish, Scottishness. I remember when they started the BBC America channel, I think, when my mother got cable in the late 90s, early 2000s, and it was on there. So she was watching it. So so I think you may be able to sell six books. So there you go. <laughs> I, 
think I mean it's the, the novels. There's a huge. The novels are hugely popular. So I think I think people will like will buy it. I'm going to self-publish it. I think because I don't think any publisher would <laughs> would risk it. So where's the best place for people to pick up local hero making of a Scottish classic? I, it depends where you are in the world. Uh, as we record this, which of course it's going to come out in a few weeks. Now we're recording this in November to, to give away the to spoil the the illusion for people. And we didn't just record it yesterday, and then it gets dropped today. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of post production work that has to happen. Exactly. It's published by a little publisher here in Scotland, Edinburgh, where like again where I live, called Polaris Books. So, so it's been published here, and it's been sent on a ship. It's on a container ship, I think, just now <laughs> on the way to America. It should get there in a couple of weeks. So, yes, it, basically, if you're in America, you should be able to get it on Amazon in the next week or so. But if you want a signed copy. There's polaris.co.uk, I think it is, or Polaris Publishing. I should know that off, off by heart. But if you Google it, you can get a signed copy and sent out from, from Edinburgh. But yeah, of course, Amazon's going to have it, isn't it? They, they've got everything, so you could get it there. Give Jeff give Jeff your money, and I'll get some of it. <laughs> and Rob, how about yourself? What are you working on these days? Uh, just finishing up master's program. I should be done in August, and um, just keep myself busy. With that, and sadly, I haven't been watching a lot of movies outside of when I pop up for you. So it's it's nice to be able to watch movies to be on this show. So that's about all I've been doing, <laughs> which means I've watched about four movies of the past year and a half. So there just hasn't been a lot. So I've just been very busy with school because it's an intensive program. So, Well, good luck with all that. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening to, I'm sure anybody that's listening to this has listened to all 600 episodes now of the show. So, you know, that, that's appreciated. If you want to give back a little bit, you know, go out there and rate and review the show. Tell me which one of the 600 was your favorite one. Hopefully this one. If you save all the UPC codes from all 600 episodes and send them in, you'll get a special prize from Mike. So there you go. I'll just say congratulations, Mike. I don't know if I, if I said it at the start of the show, but yeah, congratulations on 600. I've not listened to all 600, but I've listened to, well, hundreds probably. And I adore your show. And, you know, well, I've been throwing you a few, a few pennies every month just <laughs> as a, as a, that. yeah, I, I, because I, I love it. And I think you just, you put so much work into it. It's incredible. I don't know how much, I just don't know how you find the time. So. Um, yeah, congratulations, and here's to the next, well, at least 400. I don't know if you'll manage another 600, but get up to 1,000 at least. We'll see how it goes, yeah. And uh, if folks want to check out some of the other shows that I work on, head on over to weirdingwaymedia.com, where you can see things like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, Ranking on Bass, Podcast of Power, just all kinds of stuff. Speaking of Jeff Bezos, we talk about the Rings of Power show over there, so... Check that out and enjoy those. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, especially Jonathan, for being part of our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world and the sky. <laughs>